This episode is brought to you by Fizzy Vantage, the official climbing nutrition sponsor of the Nugget Climbing Podcast. Fizzy Vantage is the leading brand in climbing nutrition, with more than 40 professional climbers now using Fizzy Vantage products daily to support their training and climbing performance. Many of those names are people I have had on this show. Visit fizzyvantage.com to learn more about their many innovative research-based nutrition products and supplements, including their revolutionary supercharged collagen. That is my personal favorite. I'm rocking the peach mango flavor right now and loving it. I like to add that to some coconut yogurt with a little bit of honey it's a perfect pre-workout before I do my finger training. It's awesome. If you would like to feel the Fizzy Vantage, head over to fizzyvantage.com and use code NUGGET15 at checkout to save 15% off any full-priced nutrition product. That's NUGGET15 at checkout, and you can find a direct link right there in your podcast app. This episode is also brought to you by Athletic Greens. This is the other tasty beverage that I drink every day. Athletic Greens has become one of my favorite parts of my morning routine. One of the first things I do almost every morning is I wake up, I throw on a podcast, and I add a scoop of Athletic Greens to about 8 to 12 ounces of cold water. I shake that up and I sip on that while I'm making my coffee in the morning. It's super refreshing. It's a great way to start the day. It tastes good. There's some fruit extracts and stevia in there to make it tasty. I look forward to it every morning. And it's amazing. We all look forward to coffee in the morning, but this is a second tasty beverage that I get to look forward to right when I wake up. Why do I take it? Well, one scoop of Athletic Greens has 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, whole food sourced superfoods, probiotics, and adaptogens to help you start your day right. I think of it as all-in-one nutritional insurance. I like to eat whole foods when it comes to my nutrition, but it can be really hard to get fresh fruits and veggies, not to mention organic food, when you travel to some of these remote climbing areas. If I take Athletic Greens in the morning, I know I'm covered. To make your decision easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you, my dear listener, a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. Those things are super handy on road trips. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com slash nugget. Again, that is athleticgreens.com slash nugget to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. Hello, friends. Welcome to another episode of the Nugget Climbing Podcast. This is your host, Stephen Dimmitt, and my guest today is a climbing legend. Johnny Dawes is a legendary British rock climber. If you've never heard of Johnny, I recommend watching a seven-minute interview video on The Guardian. I will link to it right there in your podcast app. It'll be the first thing you see when you scroll down. Do yourself a favor. If you've never seen Johnny climb before, pause this podcast episode, scroll down, click on that video link and watch this seven minute video. It'll tell you so much about who this guy is and how he climbs. And I think that'll be a great appetizer, if you will, for this interview. I think it'll make this conversation a lot more interesting. 
I loved this conversation. Johnny is fascinating. We went all over the place from his hardest no hands climbs to his top tips for mastering footwork to his life lessons, many life lessons involving everything from three-legged stools to how to cook an omelet to why you shouldn't cook pasta when you're in a bad mood to icebergs and what they have to do with people and so much more. And with that, let's dive in. Please enjoy this window into the mind of Johnny Dawes. Okay. Hello. Vision. What did you say? It's quite strange with the with the with these semi lights on me. Where are you right now? I'm just in the uh, conservatory downstairs in uh, Worcestershire, Coldwall. Looks like a nice. Do you know where that is? No, I don't know where that is. No, I just nod when people tell me where they are in the UK. I just nod. Yeah. <laughs> you ever been to the UK? No, I never have. I'm too scared of the weather. I would love to go. I guess I uh, scared of the weather. I like yeah, I guess I traveled to. Uh, to Ireland when I was 18 years old. I did a backpacking trip with some friends of mine and we went to Dublin and uh, yeah, I remember we did a trip to Ireland, Austria, Italy, and France. And we started in Ireland and then finished in Ireland. And when we came back, we, we just were terrible with logistics on the trip. We made no plans whatsoever. We just showed up places and tried to figure it out, which is a really fun way to travel. Um, but we got back to Dublin at like two o'clock in the morning and there was a football match that next day i think and so every place in dublin was totally booked and uh this amazing cab driver i can't remember his name just an angel he picked us up and you know there's like four or five of us guys in the back of this cab all crammed together and he's driving us around and just like oh boys i don't know i don't know if we can find you something it's everything's all booked you know and he like found a place that was like 150 euro per person per night or something and we couldn't afford that and then he uh, he was like, well, I'll tell you what, I'm almost done with my shift anyway. I should be done like at 5 a.m. So I'll just drive you back to my house in the country. Give me a hundred euro to kind of make it worth my while. And you can just stay at my house. My boys are with their mom for the weekend. And so we crashed at this cab driver's house and then played him some music in the morning and he fed us breakfast. And then he drove us to the train station and we took a, a train over to um, uh, maybe to Galway, I think. And, uh, and then we got there and there was like a marathon, like a, a running race that weekend. And so Galway was all booked up too. And we just ended up buying some tents and sleeping on the beach in Galway. It was amazing. It was just one of the most memorable parts of the whole trip because everything just totally went to hell. Yeah. You, the humanity has to come out when things hit, hit, hit the fan, don't they? Right. I remember we didn't have it. We didn't have any blankets. We just had like some sheets in those tents that we bought. And it was freezing. And so we would just buy Jameson and drink some Jameson. And then, you know, we were warm enough to fall asleep. <laughs> really, da really dangerous, that. Yeah, it's not a good idea. Yeah, we that, were 18 that, years that, old. We were stupid. Very good style, isn't it? Right, right. Yeah. I don't think it was like deathly cold. You know, we were, we were more than one of us in a tent. So, but, uh, but yeah, anyway, reckless, youthful things. Once in Barcelona... I was with some friends, we went clubbing and we hadn't sorted out where to go at all. And uh, we jumped over this wall into this park 
And little do we know that this is actually Barcelona Zoo. <laughs> and we, I, I saw this outline of an elephant. So I thought, Jesus, I've really got to sort myself out here. So I went and crawled underneath the bush and went to sleep. <laughs> and in the morning woke up and there was a concrete elephant. <laughs> it's quite fun. Oh, that's amazing. Johnny, good to see you. Thanks for being here. I've been very, very, very excited to talk to you. So I really appreciate you being here. Yeah, it's cool. I've, I've had a funny old day today, been feeling a bit blue and a bit fed up, but went up to um, a boulder up in the hills and dicked about there, and I feel a bit happier now. Okay. I'm really pleased that you've got me on. It's... it's uh, I like to, I, I like, I quite like talking. And, uh, <laughs> so, you know, if you talk to somebody new and they ask you questions, um, you don't really know where it's going to go. So uh, I'm intrigued to see, see uh, where we go. Am I big enough in the, in the picture? Is it better if I come forward a bit or? Yeah, it's perfect. Okay. You look great. You've got a button up shirt on. You look presentable. Excellent. Yeah. yeah I had a shave. You've had a shave. <clears throat> Yeah. You've done more to prepare for the video component of this podcast than I have. But yeah, you you look dashing, as they say. I don't know. I don't know Cheers, who says man. that. <laughs> but interesting. So you had a blue you had a blue day. Is that um does that happen for you every now and then and is going and dicking about the cure? Um I thought I think it's just it's just when when I feel like I'm falling behind what I'm trying to achieve in my life, I think that's when I get fed up. Mm. Because it's uh you know, obviously the world's not trying to sort of help you that much. It's usually giving you sort of struggle. And you've got these ideas of, well, I've I sort of got aesthetic ideas which make what I do harder. And I'm trying to do it for the largest number of people. And um, I don't have the best arrangements of how to sort things out. You know, I haven't got... Um, a brilliant office to sort of lay lay things out. Haven't got an editor, all, all the things that some sort of professional person would have. But I've also got some amazing other things which are completely extra, which sort of skew it in a nicer way, mm. or almost make it a bit more difficult. You know, got artist friends, and I've got a poet friend that helps me with the edit. You know, which isn't entirely helpful. <laughs> <laughs> you end up veering off into some whimsy. Rather than um, making it <laughs> obvious to some eleven-year-old kid what you're trying to say to them. So, anyway, <laughs> when you're talking about um, what you want to accomplish with your life and feeling, you know, those days where you feel like you're behind, what is it? What are you trying to accomplish with your life? I know you're working on a footwork handbook. That's something I want to talk with you about later in the conversation. But I can't imagine that sharing footwork techniques is your is your life ambition. Is there a deeper mission there for you? What are you working on? Well, I, I just I just noticed that um, when I've been doing things, or a wide range of things, people use a lot of this, but they don't use a, a huge amount of this. For people listening, and, uh, he, uh, in my head, he, yeah, his head and his heart, in my heart. So lots of head, they don't not listen enough to heart. Gut. I mean, I think there's sort of three brain steep. What did you say, Stephen, then? I was just clarifying for people that can't see you. <clears throat> So yeah, yeah. You, you pointed to your head. People use a lot of their head and not uh, not much of their heart. So yeah, just clarifying that for people listening. Yeah, and there's also your gut. You know, your, your gut says, mm, not sure about this. Your heart goes, yeah, I really would like to do that. And they're the yes and no. And But your brain does a lot, hell of a lot of maybeing. 
and me being after a while just makes you want to shoot yourself <laughs> in the head you know yeah. but all three together when they're all on the same page you know you, you th amazing things can happen and uh, i feel like the world tells us um how to do that you know happenings tell us how to do that more than choices and plans mm. so um yeah so i just wanted to sort of make a system of well i mean i'm trying to make a living really with what i'm trying to do so i can do all sorts of things i really like pottery I'd like to get back to that i'd like to write an actual story rather than a handbook mm. I'm, I'm just gagging to be climbing for a long period and be away doing what i did when i was younger mm. but uh, circumstances aren't, aren't conducive to that so, you know, I'm trying to finish my project so that I can share what I know about climbing and, and more more importantly, coordination and uh, how creativity influences skill, um, you know, how to use your imagination when you do something with a larger constituency of people. You know, for instance, I'll give you one example. If you, if you can stand well and really still on two footholds, you can um, settle into that position so it becomes very memorable. And then if you are standing opposite those two footholds and somebody asks you to jump into those two holds, a movement that would be incredibly hard to do, just completely off pat, is possible to do because you know where you're going. Mm. Knowing where you're going um, in a larger sense is, is good, but in a, in a climbing sense... If you've got a clear target, you can start to work how gravity is going to affect you and you can work out when the move might work. So um, that quality of actually standing on two footholds really accurately is very powerful. And um, my point was, yes, my point was, if you use your imagination, you can help um, stand in that position more accurately. You put a bottle of water on the back of your hand and you imagine... You know, use that as a counterbalance to a certain extent, but the vibration in the water will show you whether or not you know you're still or not. But then you can use your um, your creativity. You can go well if 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 my gran was in a boat with sciatica, I'd want to still the sea, and so I I I think of it like that as if she's in there, and you can find a greater stillness than you could before when it was just you doing it. And then it's more accurate than it was before. So if you're going to jump to it, it's even safer than it was. <laughs> and something like that is, is, is not obvious until you do it. <laughs> and if you're red pointing a route and you've got, say, 25 positions on a route that are that accurate because you've hung them with real laziness but ultra precision, when you're sat on the floor looking at the route, you're thinking, should I, should I go now or not? The route is telling you whether or not you're ready to go or not with precision it's talking to you effectively and that way wrong round when it's confiding in you you know it feels uh friendly to you or, or it might not feel friendly it, it might feel a bit dangerous but you can sort of tell how dangerous you know if it's a dangerous route and how likely you are to do it if if, if it's a safe route um and imagination you know listening to your heart um, is is you know using what I call the granny brains. It's kind of three grannies really, and three if you grannies. get them all alive, 
well, just their wives. Granny, grannies don't, they know how you're feeling. They don't have to talk to you. Mm. And all they need to do is give you a cup of tea and suddenly you feel fine and you don't know why. <laughs> you know, and, and, and sometimes crags are like that. Spend some time at a nice crag. It'll, it'll sort of calm you down and, mm. uh, and you're ready to roll then. Mm-hmm. Man, I knew I was going to love talking to you, Johnny. I, I have a whole outline in front of me and couldn't decide how to start this conversation. And, and there we go. I didn't have to do anything. You're just so easy to talk to. And there's so much curiosity and intrigue that came that comes out of everything that you, uh, you just shared. So I'm very excited to dig deeper into uh, creativity um, because that's really, that probably is the word that I associate strongest with you. You know, when I think of you, Johnny Dawes, I think of you bouldering without your hands wearing a tweed coat and doing incredibly hard slab moves, uh, hands-free, just using your feet. And and I basically, like, I, I was just watching um, the interview that you did with The Guardian this morning. That's one that you had sent me to watch. And I think I'd seen it before, but it was really great to refresh and see it again. And I was just like, man, Johnny Dawes was doing... What we now see every day on Instagram, all these people doing these crazy run and jump spin moves in the gym and stuff in the 1980s. Like you like invented this stuff, basically. You're doing all this stuff before, before you know, modern competition climbing had even been conceived. And it's just so unique. I, I, I've never heard a climber talk about climbing technique and using a bottle of water on the back of your hand and imagining their grandmother in a boat inside the bottle of water. I mean, that's, I, it just makes me so curious to hear more about how you think about your climbing. I think this is going to be so much fun. I, I do, I do have um, a request for a story. This came out of the very beginning of that Guardian interview. And I was like, I have to hear this whole story. I like, you kind of told half a story and teased us all. It's a total tangent. It's a, it's a total, uh, you know, new direction from what we've been talking about, but you were describing when you were younger, driving in your car and putting a brick on the accelerator and crawling out the window. Do you remember what I'm talking about? And and would you be willing to share that story for us? Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I must've been mega bored really, but if you work out the sequence of going out of the side window of a door and going across the bonnet and into the other window, you can think, how would that be done? So, you know, you want your left foot next to the wing mirror. You put your, your right foot into the, into the, uh, that, that culvert between the, um, the bonnet and the windscreen. You then put your left foot through. And if you put your right foot through onto the other window and come underneath for an undercling, you can slip. It depends how well the car's doing, whether it's coasting towards <laughs> it. But if it's going badly, all you really have to do is, is to jump in into the side passenger seat and grab the steering wheel. And if you do that, you'll do fine. Now, if you think about it, imagine doing that. How long does it take? I have no idea. Maybe well, imagine ten, 10 seconds, somewhere between six and 10 seconds, I would say. Yeah, I mean, it's important that you do it in four, I think. <laughs> okay. If you can't do it in four, then I, I wouldn't do it. It's also very important. I'm not planning the, to, do, uh, to do this no matter what, but... <laughs> it's very important that the brick doesn't come off the accelerator as well. Why is that? Well, because the car will slow down. You'll fall off the front. Okay, right. 
Right, right. That's no good. So if you no. So if you if you're doing about, I think I was doing sixty, if I remember rightly, sixty. And I thought, kilometers an hour. If I do slip off the car, I have to land and then go into a ball and roll. <laughs> yeah. Why but you? When, how old were you at the time? About eighteen. And where were you? Were you driving on a lone was, country it, it, road? It was, or? it was at night. It was really like, uh, it was completely clear on the motorway. Okay. And I was like, had my hands off the steering wheel for like 14 seconds or so, <laughs> just looking at how it was carving. And then I also sort of walked onto the other side of the car to see how much weight distribution made it curve. So it, it wasn't crazy as such, but it was a bit pointless. But... Um, <laughs> It's good. It's good fun. I would say it was about in English grade. It's probably about yeah, East Seven Six A or something like that. <laughs> okay. Because you've got to make sure that you don't you don't miss the foot round the corner. Right. You've got to make sure you don't trip on anything. But yeah, that's a, that was one of the most ridiculous boulder problems I've done. <laughs> and if you don't onsite this, what do you say, East Seven Six A? If you don't onsite this, you know, quote, boulder problem, then you fall off a moving car at 60 kilometers an hour and your car crashes into something, presumably. You get to wash your car crash as well, yeah. <laughs> so. so you actually did it. You actually did it. That happened, yeah. Oh it's a Honda gosh. Accord, a silver Honda Accord. <laughs> Incredible. Um, that's so funny. I think the thing that, that made me most intrigued about that story was that you said so you didn't tell you didn't tell it in nearly as much detail in this video you just mentioned you know putting a brick on the accelerator and going out the window and uh and that no one was there it wasn't for anything it wasn't for anybody you weren't filming it you know this is something that like maybe johnny knoxville would do on jackass or something for a bunch of money yeah. but like he could afford a new car <laughs> if he screwed it up and johnny's just out there just doing it full commitment <laughs> nothing kind of nothing to be gained everything to lose really if you screw it up what wh why do it what's the benefit i mean this isn't the only thing that you've done um that had a lot of risk associated with it it seems like you really like to play with things just play around with life and you know there's there's clips of you climbing in that guardian video and in several others where you're climbing handless and doing pretty fast scampering slab bouldering with no crash pads you're traversing over other boulders that are on the ground like the landing would be awful if you fell off what's the benefit of that sort of stuff for you with with just kind of being playful um especially when there's some risk associated with it do you think of it that way well th these are these problems are, are at places i've been to loads before and so you know, harder things that I haven't done require me to sort of like diet, do lots of pull-ups and try again and again to do something so that I can complete it so that I've done it. Or I think of something that I fancy doing because it comes to my mind and then I imagine doing it. And when I've imagined doing it to the point where I can feel myself doing it, then I do it. And that's really what happens. It's a bit, it's a bit like having Tourette's really. <laughs> or um hmm. you know so for instance that one called design awards uh where i i run up you kick a smear um that's about 70 degrees and that gives you enough of a jolt to pop yourself up onto 
a foothold, but the foothold's not flat. It kind of like spins to the left, spins you to the left a little bit. So you have to twist your hands. And you've got to work this all out because, um, you know, if, if you slip off badly, you'll land on your back. I think this is sort of edge of a, of a rock. I can picture it now, you know, which means that I was really there when I did it because I've still got a complete memory of it. Mm. So, you know, it's like a splash of cold water. There's not much that gives you that in the world, really. Mm. You can you can afford to be pretty pretty rubbish and get away with everything in life, really. But but when you're doing that, you can't. And um, and so how you whirl your your hand and how you kick your foot, there's a real maelstrom there that's locked into that particular bit of wall. And if you're not using your hands, you know, you you can't sort of use effort to do it. You have to um, understand how it how it would be done, and then notice whether you understand it properly, and then you try it. And it's it's quite good fun um, dealing with the inevitable getting gettings wrong as well because you you know if you learn to fall really well um you know you're not scared so at the top there you 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 scamper along and you have to see all those footholds kind of as an as an array of grip coming towards you you can't really look at them if you're looking at them you you won't really be seeing and feeling where you're going to end up so you've got to run on um you've got to run on uh, on pieces of air, which you know have um, have some grip coming out at the bottom, so so uh, and at the top, you've got to to lean forward, and as you're falling forward, dive and time it so that you bend your you fold your body into at the moment when you're going to land on your tummy or or you'll land on your ribs and and break your ribs, which a few people have done apparently. <laughs> And you can't afford to tip back because you're about 20 foot up. You know, even if you matted it, it wouldn't be any good. You'd have to put a proper mat down because you'd be falling off in a really weird way. Mm. Um, but I did that for I did that for Channel 4, a film um, called the Design Awards, which is a sort of a thing where the, and I had a coffee percolator to use that only made three cups of coffee, which I thought was irritating. That was my sort of feedback to the designers. I said, you know, you <laughs> want a coffee pot, you either want it to make two or four cups of coffee, don't you? <laughs> you don't want to have you don't have a coffee and then and, and then have half a cup of coffee. I don't know. Well, you have it. You don't give it to your friend, or you give it to your friend, but you don't have it. It's, it's a bit weird. But anyway, I was able to carry um, a tray with coffee on it and, and a and a thermos to do the the problem. You know? Oh, amazing! So it was like delivering um. You know, I was just a waiter, basically. <laughs> the most, the most technically proficient uh, waiter in the world, as far as your footwork goes. I'd like to see that restaurant. Yeah, I'd like to see the restaurant where you have to scamper up, you know, e six boulders without your hands to deliver coffees to people unspilled. I mean, I think domestic design of things. I've always thought that there's no conservation of momentum with the design of. Um, of stairs. I mean, actually, there is in the Courtauld Gallery, there's a very nice uh stairwell that's angled a little bit, but they're not they're not cambered uh like a wall of death, so that you know your your momentum is is carried up 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 a, a stairwell. The civic design is you know is is kind of um still back in the days of sort of 70s sport climbing. It's not really a 
<laughs> not really moved on. What would you like to see in a, in Johnny's ideal staircase? What, what would that look like? Well, the first thing is they'd be um, they'd be slightly sprung, so that as you hit them, they would give you back some of the energy you've just used. Mm. And also, if they tilted you in the direction that you're going, they would give you most of the feedback later on in the movement. So, so as you hit it, it go boom, and you, you you redirect it where you want it. <laughs> and if you went faster, you go higher up the stairwell. And if things were designed like that, then you know life would be less less flattering and you wouldn't think it was all about you you'd have to think <laughs> you were doing something yeah because uh, you know civic design is 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 quite flattering really we've just got rid of any texture and i would say that that getting rid of textures like part of a hell of a lot of life really is we flatten we we flatten the world to flatter our egos really is what i think mm. and i include even though i put bolts in myself i'd include bolts in that I'd include bouldering mats in that. I'd include grades in that. Oh, I mean, man. I'm a total grade whore. I love grades. <laughs> and, I, and bouldering mats are very good to land on if you're not, you know, when you get older, I've broken my leg. So I'm really pleased about mats. But um, bolts, I, I don't feel quite so. I feel a bit more salty about bolts. I mean, I feel like some of the big, Yosemite walls should have been left a bit more without bolts because I think, you know, you could afford to take 100-foot falls there, Dean Potter or something like that. Mm. If I went on that with Dean Potter and my friend Pritch, you know, we'd we'd take huge falls there and it'd be a very entertaining thing to watch from, from the meadow. <laughs> and uh, and you would have to take very weavy routes, you know, and you, you, you'd dead end at certain places. But now there's bolts in there. What are you going to do, climb past a bolt? I've always found that argument a bit weird. Yeah. If I yeah. see it, I'll, I'll, I'll clip the bolt. But in a hundred years' time, when the metal started to go off, I mean, I suppose some of them are stainless and they'll do fine. But I don't know. Just bolt makes a bolt makes the route more about the bolt than the route. Even comes first, doesn't it? A bolt, a bolt route, mm. in the word. So it's 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 a bit sad, really. Because I think that now that people are climbing 9C, climbing climbing an 8C on site shouldn't be that hard. Well, but you'd for, have to have, for those people, to right? Be a, a sportsman or an athlete, you'd have to be a nutcase, and most nutcases can't be asked to be a sportsman. So <laughs> it's a bit tricky. I don't know how many, you know, Ronnie O'Sullivan probably. He's 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 a mixture. Okay, and I'd say. Uh, Valentino Rossi's got a bit of an arsehole in him as well. But, but most <laughs> most top sportsmen are not really, you know, they're not really sort of crazy enough to really engage with that sort of thing. Yeah. This is so interesting. Going back to what you said, that, that the world is flattening, that, you know, bouldering mats and grades are flattening the world and what did you say and doing that to kind of inflate our egos how did you say that i'm, I'm going to be thinking about that for the rest of the day i think that's interesting well I just, it's, it, 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 it's strangely the word the word tells us is flattering you know if, if you if you get really texture that's inconvenient for you in, in any environment you, you know you end up with something which which you you lose out with you know potatoes when you when you bake them they're really nice but you you've got this you've got this uh 
I'm not sure whether I'm going anywhere with this. But the, uh, <laughs> I want to see where the, this uh, goes. Keep going. Well, the best part of a baked potato for me is you could get rid of the whole of the potato and just have the outside. And in a way, that's what my no-hand climbing is doing. It's sort of under-climbing. I'm getting rid of the root and the grade and the relationship with other people so I can just deal with the non-flat. Mm. I, I like the unflat. I, I like the unflat to make me unflat. That's almost the point, really. Yeah. I'm not interested in in achievement because you know years later, although I'd like to do something impossible that nobody could do, I find that interesting. But I but I don't find um, you know when I watch when I watch some of the modern boulders. Don't get me wrong, I'm totally blown away by the difficulty and by the, the superb elegance of how they make really gnarly things look. You know, like Sean Rabatou, for example. You know, he's been climbing since he's about four or something. And Didier will, will have looked unimpressed and sort of quizzical in the background. And, and his his mum, you know, was a complete hone as well. So he didn't have anybody to impress because they weren't impressable. But he was <laughs> hanging out with them, picked it all, all the mimicry up, knew what was truly hard very early, Um and just shows great grace as a person, as a climber, when he's doing what he does. And it's quite amazing what he does. I mean, I think people should be much more excited by it. Mm. They don't seem very excited. They should be, I mean, draw dropping's bad because, it, it, you know, it hurts. But it, it, it really, <laughs> you know, those Looney Tunes thing where they go on the floor and they bang back up. Yeah, yeah. It really should be like that. I mean, I... When I was climbing my roots in the 80s, I was trying to make myself experience that about what I was doing. I was going, I can't believe I did that. You know, I was really excited, really excited, like like a child. If I wasn't excited like a child, well, then, you know, I might as well go and get a job. That's what, that's what I sort of always thought about it. Yeah. I want to hear more about that. I, I remember one of the more interesting things you said in our first conversation, we did a pre-interview a few weeks ago, um, was that you're not very good. This is a quote from you. You said, I'm not very good. I'm just good sometimes. And you said that you've always had eyes bigger than tummy. I love that phrase. Can you elaborate on that? What What is it that brings out the best of you or or that brought out the best of you in your climbing? He's taking a drink. Um well, we, in um, like so I just start off talking about a chess problem. So, I like playing chess, and I like um, uh, chess problems where there's you know there's either a piece you can take or you can get an advantage by something that you do tactically. And I'm always looking for that elusive layout of grip that means I have to swap feet and make some grip, and I can do that by building up speed so that a route that looks impossible is actually dead easy. That would be the ideal sort of sort of quality route. And so I, I look for that kind of rock. Slate almost has got it. Grit's almost got it. Sandstone's almost got it. Water-worn granite next to rivers is very good. Mm. That's probably my favourite, I think. Um, often you've got horrendous falls into, in, into sort of deathly rivers and stuff, which makes it. <laughs> bit too much but um that's what i was always really looking for was something that 
encapsulated a movement that was really surprising. And, and The Rock comes up with some incredibly good movements, but it doesn't quite come up with what I'm imagining and wishing existed. And I thought indoor climbing had the capacity, not had the capacity, had the capability to really make something incredibly interesting in, instead of having things that you smack your knee on and mm. and, uh, and sort of wear your skin out and feel like you've, um, you know, poisoned your skin with something. But what, what was your question was that my eyes are bigger than tummy. Yeah, my eyes are bigger than tummy because the lines that I really found exciting, I was hoping to have to use that kind of skill and to somehow make myself lighter or somehow hold a hold that's not quite hangable. It was all it was always if 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 they had holds, then it was just a case of getting light and and boring myself senseless to do the roots. So it didn't seem like they were they didn't seem like they were hard really. In terms of English grades, they were just five A, but the holds that you used were very small. They were still five A. But they were five A that you had to weigh you know, six stone and have a sour expression to do. <laughs> but not, um, but if, if you had to run and sort of do an ollie kickflip and you had to do it, you know, you had to move like Andy Anderson to do it and you couldn't even look at the hold and that particular hole was always wrecked because it was part of a stream. And as you got the next foothold, you had to bounce twice on that, wipe your foot on that foot to swap feet on it. Well, that would be an interesting move, you know, to, 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 to put it mildly, in fact. But like all sorts of things like that, there's one. And when you do no hands climbing, you have to do things like that. There's one, one route I did where you have to make your foot slide on a rough hold. So you have to sort of vibrate your foot to move your foot while you're still supported in the same shape. Really weird move, you know. Why Why is that? Can you elaborate on that? Why do you have to make your foot slide? Uh, you've got one foot in a hold and you're foot swapping. Mm. You you can't jump up because of the the environment around you, the shape. So you have to vibrate your foot until it pops out. And when it pops out, you put your other foot in. <laughs> okay. Gosh. So you say the eyes bigger than tummy and then you you, there was a different point at the beginning of that question, wasn't there? Yeah, I'm curious. Well, okay, so we're going to bounce around, but that's that's totally fine. I mean, the, I have a list of things that I was most excited to talk to you about today, and I also knew that this was just going to go wherever it's wherever it went, which is which is great. Um, you're so fun to talk to. I I, I definitely want to talk about Indian face on Cloggy or Snowden. Uh, I talked to Tim Emmett a little while ago, and I asked him what I should ask you about because he's a big admirer of your climbing and. That was the that was the one thing that he said. He said, "Man, you got to talk to him about Indian Face because that was way before its time. Probably the hardest and most dangerous route in the world at the time that you climbed it." So I'm very interested in that. And then the meltdown that came up in my conversation recently with Anna Hazelnut. That's like a dream route for for her. It's a 14D or 9A at the Slate Quarries, and that's something that you were working on back in like 1985, 1986. And, um, yeah, something that you moved away from and never came back to, but it would have been by far the hardest route in the world at the time that you were trying it. And then I remember in our, in our first conversation, you said that some of the best climbing of your life was when you weren't really sending anything. You were just trying like E12, you know, before E10 had been climbed. So 
I guess I'm just curious. Um, I don't know what order to go in here, but what is it that what is it that has allowed you to become the amazing climber that you have been at those certain snapshots in time? You know, this goes back to your little quote, I'm not very good, I'm just good sometimes. Oh yeah, that's yeah. the point, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I just I just think that's really interesting. So I'll stall I'll stall off I managed to do a hang at Rubicon Wall, which is on the limestone. And it's on these two impressions of some shells that are in a break. And it's in amongst some really sort of polished, really sort of ugly rock. It's a, it's a classic pumpy traverse that's hyper-polished. Really good fun to go and trainers, actually, because you ping off and you have to be, it's really pumpy. But in amongst it all are two amazing shells and they face towards you and the the serrations in the shells are are point straight at you. So, so they don't give you any grip whatsoever. In fact, they do exactly the opposite. And those two shells, I spent like, I don't know, an hour trying to hang on these two shells with two footholds. And I had four bouldery mats, uh, three bouldery mats, like making like a, a platform so that I could sort of just about pull off these things and then hang these shells. And then you have to say, uh, uh, Ali Rafsanjani or something like that. If you can say that, then you know that you've done the hang. That's the kind of measure. Can you paint a little more context? Are these just microscopic little holds? What, what? Well, they're, 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 scoot, they're, they're scoops like this. Okay, they're almost vertical. They're faced completely towards you. And, okay. and they're, they're really, really steep. And I just started trying them because they looked crazily impossible. I never thought I'd do it. But an hour later... Somehow I'd got just the right position and I'd used all my footworky handbook analysis, but at the end of the day, still couldn't do it. And then and then I turned on whatever else it is that you use to try and do something that you can't do. And that worked this day. Other days it doesn't work. It's very shy. It's, it's like, a, you know, they go a low gravity day. It's all about all that sort of stuff. Mm. But... These things are really ridiculous. I'm sure it's it's an it's an eight a. It's just a v eleven move just to hang it for half a second, <laughs> one second. Wow! In fact, but Ben Moon came along. He's got a video of that of uh, me. I didn't do a particularly good go with him, but I I did it enough to show that I'd done it before. Okay, yeah. And uh, <laughs> you know, there's another wall at Stony Middleton which we cleaned off, and um, I also wash holes because the lichen that's on limestone, so I did a lot of stuff on limestone during lockdown, and we ended up a, a particular walls that stayed dry in, in, in wet conditions. And so some of them were inside in caves, and some of them were, um, one of them's above a horrendous slot, so you've got to make sure that if you fall off it, you, you immediately put your foot back or you fall down this slot. <laughs> and like, it'd be a horrendous fall because you'd end up sort of like this. <laughs> <laughs> but the, the bumps on it are just exquisitely bad to hold. And I'd come there with a brush and some water that I got out of the stream and clean the holds, and then they'd dry off, and then you'd try and hang them. And uh, I was also using a new type of chalk. Um, there's a germ type of chalk called Kletterkalk, and they, 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 they measure your particular type of moisture on your skin, and then, then they match it to it. Oh, wow. And then... Um, ambassador for them because I, re I really like their their chalk and um 
and that gives you another little bit of the grade. And the other thing was to position yourself really accurately before you pulled on. So your centre of gravity was almost in the position anyway. And I'd I'd make little pillars so that, you know, this is really train spotting. It's, it's, it's such a weird little um, uh, cul-de-sac of climbing. <laughs> but hanging on shit holes, uh, I love more than almost anything. Because wow. You can see it will be done in the end. I mean, when when I look at modern boulder problems, I'm incredibly impressed with the movement and the um, the tenacity and the the what I call tensegrity, the way their body continues to weight things and elasticize hard moves, and also know where the next shapes are coming up, and having the gumption to continue so hard to do the moves that they care that much to do them. I find all that really interesting as well as a bit boring, but it is basically <laughs> really, really interesting. You see what I mean? Yeah. But hanging on holes, that's how the fucking hell did that happen? Mm. And that's what I find interesting. And a long stamina boulder problem that, that needs to be ground into a paste. I've always tried to get that interest because I could have been good at that, mm. but I never really, you know, because I did do some really, really hard moves. Like, but my my problems were like three or four moves. There's one little um, gully at Stanage Plantation that's got a four move slap uh, thing. I wanted to show Adam Andre that. I was really annoyed that they showed him all, all the classic or well, semi basic moves. I would say I don't mean mm. to be rude, but I think you know you get two slopers, have a foothold. And if you're taller, you're more under the sloper and can pop up and hit the hold. I'm not surprised he flashed it, you know? Mm. These holds, he wouldn't flash these holds. No fucking way would he do it, flash. And the, the other, but they're not good boulder problems, you know? They, they were just like, I saw that this was what I would have loved to have found but didn't find. You know, like I introduced Ben to Voyager, uh, Brad Pitt, I, I remember Ben and Jerry told me, oh, that worked. That worked. Ben said like this, you know, I thought, <laughs> yeah, well, but I never did it, you know. I, you know How hard is that did. one? What's that? Brad Pitt? How oh, hard Voyager. is that? Voyager. Voyager is oh, a really Voyager. beautiful flower of Burbage North. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I thought you, I yeah, thought you said, I, did you say Brad Pitt? Is that a different problem? What is that? Brad Pitt's another, yeah, so fantastic. These are fantastic shaped climbs. Okay. The classic problems. I think that's 8A. Okay. Um, great name for a boulder problem it was in this pit yeah okay <laughs> yeah it's, it, it's in a pit and then this german guy did the, did the direct start but he's like six foot two so nobody even really talks about that problem it's completely invisible because because he's like uh outside the mean mm. i mean it's mean it's called mean for a reason really isn't it it, it, it excludes people either end <laughs> And it's like, uh, <laughs> and and it's called normal as well. So it's normal and me. So what can you do? It's just going to be the way it is. It's the reason why the world's bad. That <laughs> naming, anyway, uh, that really is irrelevant. So, um, so, yeah, so hanging on holds, I can't hang on. I find that really, really interesting. Um, I f I find really interesting where you've got a hold but it's in the wrong place and somehow you try and move the way that hold works to somewhere else mm. so you you dino into it you use it to move your body to somewhere you, 
that you can use other holds that previously weren't usable. That to me is what modern comp moves should be about, mm. but they're flattering. You know, you get one foothold and it leads you to another foothold. But if that foothold was down six inches and faced the wrong way, you would have to put in a whirligig into your body, swap feet, and then if the next hole wasn't visible from where you started out and you had two holes that had to use, be used perfectly, you know, for, for instance, uh, the one that I do at the foundry where I run around the corner and get those two blobs and I swing back in and swing back out. Yeah. That hang is V7 to hang. Those <laughs> wow. two holes are not easy to hang. They're really, really hard. Yeah. It took me a while to hang those holes. And then after you get that, you know, there's, there's two moves after that. But that run around, you're starting facing that way and you, you finish facing that way. You cannot look at those holes. You have to hang on that position and you can't even hang on that position because it's a swinging position. Mm. Those two holes, if you notice when I swing out, I have to move my hand mid-swing and put it back. <laughs> I'll be watching so this again. It's a really complicated level of skill. Yeah. And... I mean, I think in, I don't think I've got the physicality to, to, to do the kind of long, powerful kind of um, linked boulder problems that they do in the competitions now. But the technicality of what I did was a shorter range, but the music, the musicality of it was much more subtle. I mean, it's a bit, it's a bit drum and bass, the modern stuff, whereas what I was doing was, was, you know, uh, Simon and Garfunkel. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? That's amazing. That's such a good analogy. I've got the wrong one. Steely Dan was who I was searching Steely for. Steely Dan, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Like Peg. You know how intricate what they do is? In the end, it sounds really obvious. Mm. And that obviousness, you know, comes out of the rock. So if you climb a lot on Burbage North, or, or Burbage South is really the crack, Burbage South, and then you go into the boulders and you find a new boulder problem. When, when you end up, uh, I did, did one called Puppet Government recently, which is on a terrible, terrible hold. It's literally only six foot high, this boulder. And you hang this move, come around a corner, swap, swap feet and pull up. It's like, I don't know, it's, it's V10 or something. It's a really hard move. <laughs> Just to hang on, it's really, really hard. Yeah. But, um, but being used to Burbage South, meant that I could see that that was climbable. It's not the same as climbing at Stanage. It's just not the same at all. And I think, um, I mean, that's actually what makes some of these climbers that I was being salty about earlier so incredible. Is that they can just rock up at any of these places and just do these incredible problems, you know, because they, they've got like sort of, you know, the equivalent of, you know, a thousand brake horsepower. Mm. I, I was probably like, you know, a, uh, well, mantle shelves, I had a 400 brake horsepower V8, I, but I was generally about 320 brake, you know, like a V6. Okay. I was like, like an old school matcher or something. <laughs> Whereas, you know, which if you drive well, actually can go really quick. Yeah. But not, um, but like the modern climates really are incredible. I mean, it'll, it'll keep getting worse as well, won't it? <laughs> what do you mean by worse? Just more physicality. It'll become more and more and more physical. Yeah, that's um, probably true. I mean, I don't know. Some. I mean, going back to like incredible. Yeah, going back to like Sean Rabbitu. I mean, there there is, um, I think, 
a lot of that depth and complex complex musicality within the physicality. You know, there's a lot more nuance going on there than meets the eye, maybe with some of these V17s and things that that someone like that's oh, absolutely. doing. Absolutely, that's that's what I was pointing to before. Hopefully, yeah. I made that. Clear. I recognize that. Yeah, what I said before. They, um, you know, they're blind moves. They're linked together. And, and, they, and they require that elasticity in the body to tension things. And then, so you, you need to go sort of tight and then soft. And then there's lots of circularity with the feet as well and foot kicks and mm. really weird kind of things like that that you've got to find. So, but it's but it's inverted from what I did it with. I, I, I did the sort of yin stuff, but they're doing the yang stuff. Mm. I can completely see, I completely um, respect that part of it. I mean, you know, Daniel, Daniel's a good friend. So I've, I really, really enjoyed hanging out with him. And uh, who else do I like from that ilk? Bus Gino, Hayden, Ryan. Yeah, I had a great day w w climbing with, with Ryan and Hank Pascal. Hank, Hank made the worst video of, of me I've ever seen. <laughs> did, this, did this diner off this big jug where you had to swing, kick this foothold, and you've got this tiny little pinch and this two finger slope, 45 degree sloping dish with your left hand. And you had to hit it exactly right. And I was really made up because it filmed it. And then I <laughs> I saw the film and I thought the film was like moving. I wasn't framed. It was like, <laughs> but the fact that Hank filmed it, you know, just makes, do you know about Hank Pascal? No, I don't. You know that name. So he was a Lancashire climber and he probably did the first v7 v8 face climb called okay. hank's wall it was a classic brownstones is in a quarry uh outside bury or something and it was really horrendously thin you know and done in ebs and then people couldn't repeat it for years i, lo I love stuff like that mm. that's great it, it I, was like so langshire arts to john gill or something okay yeah no that's that's great well, I, I feel like i should know that name so thanks for sharing that i am curious so with something like Indian Face, why? What did draw you into that? Because I'm sure that was something that that. Um, I mean, I would never call Indian Face straightforward or or boring by any means. But based on the way you're talking about climbing and the things that interest you, it seems like it fits more into, uh, you know, just kind of the the normal, I guess you know, stringing together a, a, a series of hard moves. What was it about that that sucked you in and, and made you want to do it? And, and what did that process look like? So I first climbed on Klogundrathi in, in 83. Uh, we were at Stanage with my friend Neil McCady, and it was really uh, incredibly hot. And we thought, bugger this, let's go to North Wales. So we drove to North Wales and uh, it was really hot in North Wales. And we, we slept underneath uh, the boulders at the Cromlech. And we're woken up by this really strange woman that used to charge people money, but had nothing. She didn't own the boulders. She just used to <laughs> charge tourists. She was really quite a strange, unusual lady. Anyway, we sort of avoided her and the midges and decided to go up to Clog and uh, walked up there. And then dawn came up and we did about four beautiful routes with e2s and e3s and that happened to be the day when jerry moffitt arrived and did master's wall mm. saw ab down it and he had long white socks on and the new sticky boots and things 
and I was still sort of, you know, J- Jerry was Jerry was up here still to me. I'd done Ulysses. I did think I did Ulysses on site the next year. So I sort of did one of his hard routes on site that he had taught ropes. So I sort of that changed that changed how I felt about myself and um in re- and also in, re- in regard to Jerry as being other than me, you know. Mm. But um but we are there at Clog and we climbed bigger wrecks, we climbed fantastic cracks, we did beautiful traverses, went round corners and getting rocks that you got and what you said, Neil. And you you know, you got your big heavy chalk bag and and, and it turns upside down and covers your face in chalk. <laughs> and then you go back down and you've got some, you know, some horrendously sweet tango to drink and uh <laughs> some really horrible ham sandwiches that you should have chucked away. And and then he arrives, does does that route. And I was on the top of um uh curving a wreck, which is just this this crazily exposed but not too hard. Uh, 5B erect, which is, I don't know, 510, 510A or something, 510B. And then, um, but I'd also been reading about Cloggy and also about the future of climbing, written by somebody called Pete Livesey, who was a, uh, an athlete and a caver, um, cross-country runner. And um, he was also into climbing. And he he wrote an article to it called The Shape of Things to Come, which categorized different types of, of future climbs. One was bouldering. The other one was long, sustained routes that were safe and bolted. And the other one was super bold routes that were sustained and, well, just lethal routes. And that's when I read that, he, he sort of thought that that was the most impressive category. And I must admit, that's what I already thought. If you can't fall off, you need to be good. Is the basic idea, and also you're climbing rock. You're not climbing rock plus or rock minus. And um, what do you mean rock plus and rock minus? Well, r- r- something added to rock is a bolt. Mm. Something taken away f- from from the rock is um, is something that's practiced. Now I practiced mm. in the end, and I practiced quite a few things on grit. But I was doing a lot of things on site as well. I, I was climbing E7 on site um, in 1986, and uh, numerous E6s, probably eight E6s, but also did a couple of E7s that year. Did Kaya and um, um, what's it called now? There's one in Wenzel, one of my friend uh, Noel Cranes that I did on site as well, E7. And also one step beyond on curb, I did ground up. So, and so I could have climbed something on Cloggy of that standard, but there's a lot of competition to do that route. Um, I've gone off on a little side shoot here, but the basic point was that the main wall on Cloggy, Master's Wall, which is what that wall was called. It, it, it wasn't Jerry did the mass. He did a route that he called the Master's Wall, but it didn't take the line that the term Master's Wall referred to, which is mm. an open scoop that went up the whole of the cliff, and it was just sort of quite obviously a complete complete trouser filler. It had very very <laughs> trouser <gear>. filler, <laughs> and it was um, nice. And it had and it had holes. It wasn't that it was blank, but the holes were side pulls. Mm. And um, and not complete. You couldn't yard on them because they were fragile. They're not snappy, but they're thin, 
some of the holes are, are like ripply. It's rhyolitic, you know. So 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 uh, you, there's knobbles and, and textures, and you have to be really accurate. And you're popping to other positions. So all the stuff with the parkour sort of stuff that I've been doing and low low grip enabled me to phrase things. So I knew moves would work. So I was ready for it. I'd also done a hell of a lot of stuff on brickwork at school where there wasn't any climbing to be done. Mm. So I was climbing up the fives court walls and things. And some of those in retrospect were E8s. They were like, wow, you know, 70 plus font. But 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 the crux is thirty. You know, it's twenty five foot up above flat ground. They they were they were E eight. So I'd, I'd been climbing E seventy eight ground up, but I didn't I didn't know what that was. But when I was reading Shape of Things to Come at school, I would read it things, and every time I would be living that. I wouldn't call it visualization because it was much more bodily than that. I I wasn't wasn't eyeballing it. I was I was doing it, and I just sort of didn't give a shit. You know, I was at the TT on a motorbike. I was I was going flat out, uh, and I was riding the bike. I could feel what was going on, and it was all right, just about. So from doing what I did, I sort of turned up and thought I could do this. But JR, this 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 artist, uh, he was a, he was a good friend, but but also a bit a bit kind of. Uh, I just think he was doing things in his own way. Let's put it like that. And uh, you know, he'd 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 taken a big fall off it. He'd put a bolt in it, and then called me a sport climber. I didn't understand that. Then he put. Then he started painting a picture when he pulled the flake off. Um, so it, it was it was all, you know, repeating it years ago. So 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 Jr. was sort of quite conflicted. Uh, can you ask me a more specific question so I don't ramble? Yeah, yeah, that's that's great. Well, I'm I'm just interested with Indian Face. It sounds like there was a competition kind of going on for the first ascent of this thing. This was like a well-established... Well, everybody wanted to do it, Everyone yeah. wanted to do it, yeah. A lot of people had tried it. I mean, Jer- Jerry in Trimaster's wall and going off, you know, he'd, 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 uh, he'd not done the line. JR tried it, put a bolt in, which is, once again, not climbing the line. Um, mm. uh, Al, Al Evans had tried it in the late seventies, which is really, really scary. You know, got a Fowler had tried it. Fantastic um, traditional climber, very, very good alpinist. And also the fact that other climbers hadn't been on it spoke volumes because it was the line, you mm. know, and it was it was framed by all these all these big cliffs. It was on the the most beautiful part, the most beautiful face. In North Wales, which is for me the home of world climbing, it's got every type of 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 rock there, and you know had a really really long history, and uh, has had the hardest routes in Britain and lots of times, you know. Mm. And funnily enough, the crags that I really like are, are where a lot of the hardest routes have popped up. I don't mean my routes; I mean, well, not just my routes. Uh, <laughs> the uh, you know. They, funnily enough, they're on these crags, and um, and that I find interesting. Mm. It's like the, it's it's like Britain is a big apple tree, and that's where the apples grow. You know, <laughs> the climbing apples are there. Yeah, and and if you know if you know the apple tree, then you can do the roots quicker than other people who don't notice where the apple trees are. So that was a big part of what I did was knowing the crags. Mm. My Indian face was the plum, well. Uh, 
the I'm apple. Mixing my metaphors there. <laughs> the biggest juiciest apple, maybe. What What did your process look like on the route? Did you enjoy that process of projecting it? Because I mean, it's, you know, it sounds like most of the most of what you had looked for in your climbing was these impossible little challenges not not little in this not to diminish them but um you know hanging two holds or doing a three move sequence or you know climbing a boulder without your I hands i mean i've taken you off and i've taken you off into the laboratory there of my mind of what right I'm right doing. right yeah but but when i'd go to burbage south i would i would look for the most amazing lines and i would write them down in a book i used to it's a shame i haven't got it now but i used to have a book with photographs and all the lines and i and i i knew all the lines in the peak that i wanted to do you know encyclopedic or all, all sort of 1500 routes or something oh my gosh so on a particular day with, with a certain weather th that that route would kind of pop into my head and then i'd go and try that route and then when i was there i'd seldom do that one i'd find something else and do that so i was really contrary i was a bit but I would bit by bit I would get to the point where I'd I got better than the routes that I, I I knew, and when I was just say a grade better, say say you know five twelve B to five twelve C, I'd be able to do a five twelve B that was dangerous, even though I was only climbing twelve C or twelve D, mm. and I would have these written down, and I I, I wanted to be a part of of the history of of the sport, you know. John Allen impressed me. Johnny Woodward impressed me. Pete Willens. All these people for me were, were uh, um, you know, for a while I was interested in fashion, I remember. And certain certain of the fashion houses remind me of the climbers and what they came out with, you know, Johnny Woodward's roots on, on the roaches. They were called amazing names, you know, Wings of Unreason, Days of Future Past, Um that they they, they 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 sort of made me feel really excited, you know, Art Nouveau of of, of Simon Nadins, all these. They just made they just made the rocks sparkle and really exciting to climb. Mm. And there was the level where you did them on site. There was the level where you uh, did them after work and you you then soloed them. Or I used to not really top rope very much because I like to do it on my own. So I'd abseil down them and try the moves. So the actual link was something that I had left to do. I wouldn't say it was much different from top rope, not to try to claim it's an ethically superior mode, but it was more enjoyable to do. And um, and I would sort of key into the routes because I was going to risk my life on them. At that point, <laughs> nobody's really doing ollies on routes, if you know what I mean. You know, you're still, you're still on a skateboard, to suddenly put it five foot in the air by jumping up on it, it's fucking amazing, isn't it? And you're doing that because you're somehow making grip on something you're stood on. And ollies are arranged in asymmetrical ways all over grip, depending upon how you approach it and how you move. So if you... But you, you can't really look at the holes so much and you have to know exactly what your positions you're going to hit. And sometimes those positions segue into other positions you've got to know. So didn't quite find exactly what I wanted in that mode, but some of those routes did get to that level. And uh, and I, I did that by practicing routes. So I was on sighting sometimes, 
sometimes I was, I was trying things that I couldn't do at all that were baffling. And other times I was, you know, doing my version of frigging the roots like that. Mm. And we will be right back. This episode is brought to you by Rumple. My Rumple blanket is literally one of my favorite things I own. It's so cozy. It's like having the coziness of a puffy sleeping bag with you wherever you go. Check out this story. On a surf and ski trip through California, the founders of Rumple got stuck in the back of a car in freezing temperatures and had to bundle up in their sleeping bags and sip whiskey to stay warm while they waited for rescue. Cozy and warm in their sleeping bags, they realized they were even cozier than they typically were in their beds at home. The idea for the sleeping bag blanket was born. Rumpel's original puffy blanket is made of the same materials as your favorite outdoor gear. It pairs durable 20D ripstop nylon with a durable water repellent finish, so it's water resistant, stain resistant, and odor resistant. And as I said, it's the coziest blanket you could ask for. Perfect for staying warm at the boulders or at the crag. Great for camping. I have one in my van and use it all the time. And just great to have around the house. It'll be your new favorite blanket full stop, whatever the circumstances. Go to rumple.com slash nugget and use code nugget at checkout for 10% off your order. That's 10% off your first order when you go to rumple.com slash nugget and use code nugget at checkout. This episode is also brought to you by Rocky Talkie. Rocky Talkies are backcountry radios designed by a small team of climbers from Denver, Colorado. I love these things. I never thought I'd go back to using radios in the year 2023, but these things are awesome. Here's the deal. We all have phones, but sometimes phones aren't very helpful. Let's say you're climbing a multi-pitch climb or you're backcountry skiing and don't want to drop your phone in the snow or you're mountain biking and it's a pain to stop and get your phone out or you don't have service. Phones are not always the best option. The best way to communicate in the backcountry is with Rocky Talkies. These things are made by climbers for climbers. They're super compact. They weigh less than half a pound. They come with a built-in carabiner, so you can easily clip them to your pack or harness. And the batteries last over three days, even in winter conditions. I actually used these bouldering in Waco tanks this winter. There were a few times when I made plans to meet up with friends at the boulders. I knew I wouldn't have cell reception and the Rocky Talkies worked perfectly. I'm a huge fan and they're so much fun. Get 10% off your first pair of Rocky Talkies by going to rockytalkie.com slash nugget. That's rockytalkie.com slash nugget for 10% off your first order of backcountry radios. And now back to the show. In the end, did Indian Face, does it stand out for you? Does it feel like something that's a highlight for you in your climbing career? Indian, Indian Face was uh, just mind-blowing. The, the, the night that I did it and, and Clamberis was kind of partying was really incredible. Uh, it was the Dolbadan disco that happened to be that night, which is like a mixture of locals and, and climbers. And the, 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 music was, uh, the music was sort of disco- sort of pretty pretty rubbish really but there'd be lots of we'd be all a bit drunk and the lights were were a good laugh and then we'd go there'd always be an after party you'd go out to somebody's house and uh then there'd be some new wave on or some you know some punk or on it or and uh and the there'd be some tourists that would get snagged in amongst it who would come along for the ride you know who were surprised to be there 
Or I remember there were some th- three Danish lasses that were there one year that were good fun, and it was um, in the Indian face was like the culmination of what I wanted to do because it, I'd, I'd had all these on the list and that was the main one I wanted to do. Mm. So it's the end. It was the end of a certain uh, uh, presentation of my skills, mm. and then. After that, I was working on other things. So slate became a big thing, and I was uh, I'd sport climbing had sort of started. So I went away to France, and I started to apply that to to some uh, some normal rock climbs, and also to the slate where where I bolted some routes, and that's when I started try, trying the meltdown, um, and the melt Tooth Mower, the, the the West Face face is cloggy. So, so they were sort of talking to each other, the two schools of climbing in a way. And uh, it, it's in a thousand foot hole and you've got the drone of the, um, of the machine and deep in, that pumps the water for the electricity for North Wales and Manchester and that. It stores electricity in a big vault of water. And you can, you can hear the, the, um, the rock vibrate. And on, on wet days, it, it, it has this uh, um, this crystallization that, that's in a wave across it. And so, you know, th- these bits of rock are just really massive and incredibly beautiful and feel permanent. And they feel like they're on the surface of the planet. They, they, don't, they don't feel like they're Welsh or they're English or when you climb it, you've done a certain standard of route. They're just big, massive, lovely things to to have been involved with and and to climb them to climb them is amazing ex- uh, experience it's like a rap record and i love the lap recordness of it but but it's um but being up a clog and being a part of cloggy because i've because i've done that and other routes i mean 2018 i did a beautiful route called island which is e76b and greek fire which takes a beautiful headwall e66b because i did those most recently I did them with my friend David Greenold, who also did a route that he first saw in '77 called Custom. He ended up calling Custom Pie because next to Jelly Roll. <laughs> um, you know, he 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 was wanting to do that route for 23 plus 23, 46 years. He's been waiting to do that route, wow. and we all did that with him. You know, he was is a bit beyond his pay grade, so he was working at it and steadily got to the point where he could do it, and. Uh, to do all those routes, and, um, and then Nick was up there. He did five routes. Craig came up for little bits. Craig Smith, who did the Great Flake and uh, Kaylee and things. And, uh, you know, it was just like it used to be, uh, cli- climbing together. And you didn't, you know, people turned up we didn't know, so you met at the crag. And that's really exciting. You know, you, you, you'd forgotten about somebody, and there they were. You know, they might be from the lakes or Scotland or... Sometimes these, well, that guy's German. What's he doing here? And then he'd come and talk, you know, and you go, I love your roots. You know, you'd be like, okay. (laughs) Or it's just sort of, it's just energetic, really energetic and and cloggy (laughs) doing Indian face. You know, he's he's just a lap record. It's like Peter Hickman's going around the TT really fast. It's just a fucking nuts route. It's just outrageous. And the climbing is absolutely incredible. And, you know, you get to stand on a ledge and look out 
while you're scared shitless and you can stay there forever <laughs> it's not hard to stay there yeah and then you've got to recommit so you have to you have to you have to risk your life twice mm. and that's a different thing and um <laughs> and you know it's not so hard that anybody couldn't do it so it's it's, it's so, sort of like points out the fact that that people aren't quite sure that they're not going to fall off mm. so they don't really know how to climb at some level how hard is the technical grade I'm just on that one? Sorted. What's that? <laughs> How hard is the technical grade of Indian face? Well, what is it? What sort of grading system are we using? Uh, let's say French, uh, the French technical French grade. Sport. French sport, yeah. French sport. I think it would be hard 70 plus, easy 7C. Okay. So like 12C but or 12D. If you go the wrong way. Listening. Yeah. If you went the wrong way, though, if you get your foot wrong and you have to move it, you better be bloody good. You you better mm. be a technical Frenchman to do do the move. You you don't want to be, you know, you, you don't want to be fresh off the campus board having done twenty routes, <laughs> right? But, um, yeah, and and it's you know it's it's subtle. It's got Mantelshelf moves. It's got drop down on a sloper. It's got a a, a really dangerous foot swap. If you catch your foot on the foot and you fall, you're going to fall. You're not going to hit any runners for the 70 foot. You're going to fall 70 foot Oof. before you hit any runners. And the first runner you hit is an RP1, <laughs> then an RP0, then an RP2, then a small sling, which is a three meter, three mil on a, on, on a sling, then a really bad flat runner. And, and these I filed down, you know, I, I was trying to crack a safe. So, um, you know, all the runners and how I arranged it. So some of the runners I had a higher runner was going to get held after a lower runner had took the weight because the higher runner was a better runner. and I didn't want it to rip. And then the shitty runners underneath that wouldn't work anyway, wouldn't <laughs> be of any use. So I used the shit runners as a slower downer for the good runners. Wow. And the good runners were good and then i was always always thinking that if those all stripped i would count the number of jerks on my body and i knew that if there were three jerks i was going to have to jump and try and hit the grass turf <laughs> and the grass turf you know you only get a small amount of time when the deceleration was sufficient if that's I'm just giving you a bit of a bit of light oh that's a good idea oh that one's already on yeah but it's not very okay. good this, this, okay? this is my dad. Say hello, Paz. Hello. <laughs> nice to meet you. Yeah. Dawes. Well, Dr. Dawes. <laughs> Dr. Dawes. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Yeah, it sounds like a safe cracking. I, I, love, I love that comparison. Sorry. Please continue. Yeah. That's oh, all right. I would still always be worth mentioning why I called it Indian Face. Yeah. Yeah, I'd be curious to hear. So my friend Gabbert, who was, well, in the 90s, he, he set up all the parties that were in the quarries, the incredible raves there. But before that, uh, he used to be the sort of like local local marijuana dealer. He used to come into the pub and he'd go, hush for cash, hush for cash. So then he'd be outside and uh, you'd come out and, and, and get some squidgy black or you or you'd get some... Uh, squidgy black. <laughs> or like... Uh. But, um, 
do we talk about drugs? I don't know. Sure. Gabba, yeah. anyway, <laughs> he was he was the the uh, the seller of pot, and he used to turn up and do that. But he used to call Cloggy the Indian face because when it used to snow, the ledges above Indian face on the east buttress, which of which it was a part, all those ledges used to get covered in snow. When it melts a little bit, the cliffs would stand out and that would make a headdress. And the pinnacle, which is the top left of East Buttress, that would be the Indian's head, Indian chief. It's a Comanche, actually. Okay. Funnily enough. And uh, in Indian face was, was the main focal point of that whole buttress. So, and it seemed to me that... Um, I suppose I named it Indian Face in respect to Gabbard because he was a local chap. And also the fact that, you know, indigenous peoples or pe wild people just um, get driven out, basically, in the end was my point. Mm. So at that particular point, that's exactly what was happening. You know, sport climbing was coming in and, and driving. And I was kind of, in a way, using sport climbing tactics a little bit on the cliff, like JR would suggest. But so is he. <laughs> mm. So is he. If you look at the runners, they're on his harness. Funnily enough, they do fit into the crack on on Jerry Moffat's master's wall. You know, I'm putting a bolt in. I didn't put a bolt in, did I? Mm. No, no, I didn't. So, um, and he'd already put a bolt in also on margins of the mine, which is round the corner, really amazing E8, which is you know, 70 plus, hard route. So... You know, JR was weapons great and the fact that it was all going on with him. And I loved his paintings. He's really good fun. One time we were in a, a Citroen 2CV that he had and uh, I was given the pedals to use and uh, he had the steering. And we, we we drove the car like that, which wasn't ideal. Um, <laughs> so, you know, he had the steering, which one, I can't remember anyway. He gave me real challenges of control um based upon what he did and i had to sort it out with what i had and basically we we sort of <laughs> caused an issue on the roads around Cranberries <laughs> for, for the day the, another time for example he didn't really give a damn johnny one time we were going up the pass and he got to decided that no he was going to go the opposite way down the pass and this was a saturday in the middle of summer june oh, so there's loads of people trying to come up the pass and down the pass so he's doing a three-point turn in the middle of this road, which takes quite a long time. It's quite a narrow road. And then when he gets it facing down the road, he decides, do you know, I've changed my mind. I think we're going to go back where we were going to go. So he starts three-point turning and going the other way and goes back up the road. But by this time, there's literally like 100 cars <laughs> in either direction. And John's just enjoyed the whole drama of being a twat. <laughs> Oh my gosh. It reminds me a bit of Kurt Albert doing exactly the same thing on an escalator. He was uh <laughs> So do you ever do you know about Kurt Albert? I know, I know I know about him. Yeah, I mean just so he was like six foot four, but he was he was like he's like a kid. Okay. And he went on holiday to um to uh where were we? We well we went we went to India together with Jerry and um so we're on an escalator and he decides in the in the middle of the escalator to to to, to jump up and bridge on the steel on either side, <laughs> which of course means that everybody's coming up. 
And they're all backing off and it's all compounding, concertinaing down <laughs> so that people getting on are like got no space to go. And eventually he jumps back on and gets to the top. And then the top, he stands to the side and he's bowing to everybody and they apologize. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. <laughs> Hilarious. Really, really funny. Another time he had a butter knife. And he was in an Erlangen cafe and he had butter on the end of this really boingy knife like this. <laughs> he looks as really serious. He says, the butter on this knife will not come off at all. And he goes like this and goes like that. And it, and it flies off, flies across the room and lands on, you know, sort of really rich people sometimes have diamonds on the top of their glasses. Well, this woman <laughs> like super posh German. And it lands on her glass. Oh my god! <laughs> it sticks there, you know. So that was Jerry. That was uh, Kurt, Kurt Albert's uh, flinging so butter a with a butter knife. Think to Jerry, Johnny, um, stopping on the road. <laughs> I'm waffling. I'm sorry. Oh my gosh! No, this is amazing. Don't apologize. Okay, I, I would be. Um, I would be a very bad interviewer though if I didn't make sure that we talked about footwork tips. You know, I can't talk to Johnny Dawes and not talk about some footwork tips. And I'm going to kick this off by reading a question from one of my patrons who asked you a question or really just submitted a, a nice paragraph about you. This is from Art Jum. And Art Jum writes, talking about you, uh, Johnny, uh, this guy is my role model as well as on a hazelnut. Thank you so much for getting these two slab experts on the show. I started climbing in 2020 and with typical beginner gusto, found myself with a wrist injury for a month. I was pretty bummed. Then I came across a video of Johnny Dawes doing no hands slab climbing. Who knew my month of injury would become the most transformative month of my climbing thus far? I improved so much technically and mentally from that month of no hands slab climbing, and I still have so much to learn. So, yeah, not even a question in there, but I thought that'd be a fun thing to, no, that's great. to share. Well yeah. Artem, your your next things to do are hopefully you don't use your knees and you don't use your elbows. When you're climbing, get somebody below who's with you to blow a whistle, at which point you have to freeze. That's really oh, good exercise. Interesting. Another one is when you're on two footholds, somebody can whistle again and you can swap feet. So swapping feet makes you really notice in what way you're going to fall off and you have to reposition really quickly. Mm. And if you can do that really quickly, you'll, you'll, you'll speed up your, uh, you're working out what to do a great deal. Mm. Another thing you can do is put, uh, I mean, you've got to be careful what sort of rock you do it on because you can cause damage, but climbing in the, in, in, in the rain is really good. Wow. Okay. Without your like hands. On granite or something like that. I mean, you've got to be careful because <laughs> you fall on granite <laughs> in the rain and you, you skid. You really could absolutely um, grind yourself down to the bone. Yeah. If you can find the right scenario, cl cl climbing in the damp will, will bring you on a lot. And say, um, you know, f finding a foothold, say you've got a good foothold and then a really poor foothold that doesn't quite work and another good foothold. Try and try and use that shit foothold to get the next position, and that will bring you on as well. That that's basically trains you in the ollie the ollie um, element of climbing. Mm. These are all hands free things to practice, correct? Yeah. Okay. And always, you, you know, you move your head around. 
and that makes the 3D surface of the rock pop out. And you can see then where you would land a little helicopter. It's something that I've got on a on a the original No Hands Climbing uh, video I made with my friend Wayne Sharrocks. But you uh, you move your head around, you think, oh yeah, I'll land and I'll come into land like that. And what you do is you you hit the hold and then you bounce back out. And as you bounce back out, you draw light out of it. And at that point, you can you can see how you need to bring your foot into land. And then you use that foothold at 90 degrees. And if you shake your foot right, you know, that then then you get every single move um gripped up nicely. And then it just becomes a case of how the two holes work together. And 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 that's got I can't give you all my secrets, but that's where the real stuff starts. <laughs> Johnny, what do you think is the, what, what's the hardest thing you've climbed without using your hands? Um, probably, I, I did the rainbow slab um, by a route called Cystitis by Proxy in Split Street um, on the slate. That's a very hard one. I managed to walk up and, and he ate at uh, the roaches called um obsession fatale but actually it's very nearly a no hands route anyway so it's not actually as hard as you 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 imagine but it's the most it's the most spray worthy because it's given the eight you know? okay <laughs> but the hardest one is is a high neb and it's it's called footwork f1 which is a which is a formula one team that were really quite good but never had any money mm. um and this particular one, you, you've got three moves in a row, which you have to get the movement right for each to unlock the third. So every time, if you haven't got enough grip, it gets a minus one. If you can't see the hole, it gets a minus one. And if you need to do one move to do the next move, it gets a minus one. And that particular route has got minus four. So okay. when you when you try and climb it, there's four things that make it really hard or all in a row. So that's probably the hardest one. And it's 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 on a small lens of slab down and left of a of a roof crack called Jeepers Creepers. And it's very nondescript. And that's the amazing thing, you know, it's it's next to it's actually a new route, but it's it's so if you were climbing with your hands, we'd have holds here. But if you do it with no hands, then the array, you know, it's it's a brilliant new route. I mean, on Stanage, I've done a hundred and 88 routes like no hands there's, there's 800 <laughs> routes there so wow. one in one in seven routes is is a walk and on um in britain as a whole i've done 1600 walks i probably walked about 150 extremes wow so extremes are like five, five nine is e1 okay i've probably done about 12 e1s done about the thing is, the grade doesn't really, it, you know, something the Z4s that I've done that are not that hard, but there's hard BSs you can't do at all. No, no hands mm. climbing is bonkers. And some of the hard BSs are, are really, really hard. Um, sure. Yeah. There's also hop, hopping as well. If you want to get really <laughs> ridiculous, you can, you can hop route. Yeah. That, that was something I'd, that's something I'd forgotten about watching that. Um, that guardian interview again yeah you you did something just hopping up the boulder with one foot and i was like man that's i've never tried anything quite like that so you so just to clarify what you just said you said you've done 150 more than 150 routes no hands 
five nine or harder? Fifteen hundred. Oh yeah, about fifteen. Let me think. Fifteen hundred routes in in Britain. I've done no hands on all wow. sorts of different routes. Okay. And about probably a hundred extremes. Okay. Something like that. <laughs> That's incredible. Okay, so before they take variants, you know. Sure. Yeah. Do I mean? Do you document these things? Is there like a guidebook for for no hands climbing? I've I've, I've marked guide some somewhere in my guides in, in back in Sheffield. I've I've got the lines marked out, so I should be able to. I mean, even 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 if I just come up with a with a select guide, it's, it's called the guidebook's called Spectacular Walks um, on British Rock. That's great. But some some of them are absolutely amazing. You know, you're they've got foot swaps, they've got cir- circle um, circulations. One of them, you you face outward from the rock, artless. It's called a, a, a froggit, and you you go right down on a heel on the foot, and you balance, and your hands are right to the side, and you put your foot completely split to to one side onto a foothold, and then you transfer your weight along that long line until you're on that foot and then you whirl your hands round and twist them and that twists your body up and you swing your foot right round up and on onto the highest position I can get with my foot. It's so hard to unlock. It took me about <laughs> you know, about 20 minutes to do that single move. But, um, yeah, that's it. That's E4, that particular one. And it's not, it's not an easy route, full stop, Artless. Oh, wow. <laughs> I mean, for people listening again that that haven't seen these, I'll share I'll share your videos for people to watch. But just imagine like the most incredible, you know, modern comp slab boulder where you have to use tons of coordination and run across the wall, and you know, maybe like stick a stick a perch or a, a tow hook without using your hands or something. It's basically what Johnny spends most of his life doing and is done on rock. I mean, I don't think I've seen anyone else match the sort of like complexity and coordination that that you've unlocked on some of these handless rock climbs so yeah i don't know it's just kind of in your own world i I think i think i've done a hell of a lot of it and i've done quite a wide variety of this and that but i mean mark and antoine and jackie godoff would have done it in font i know that they walked a lot i think Mm. they walked science friction or something you know it's not it's not that people didn't do it and i'm i'm sure john gill and, and and um you know the the, uh, the stone masters. They will have done lots of this dicking about. I'm okay. sure. But I, th- I think I've learned because I did so much of it for a long time, and because I used did quite a lot of stuff at speed. I think I started doing foot swaps and making grip, and um, trusting I could hit shapes far away more than people perform. That's what I would say. Can you describe what you mean by making grip? Or so if you got so yeah if, if if I mean if a motorbike drives around a vertical wall they can make enough grip that they can stay up on the vertical. Mm. Okay. And the equivalent the equivalent is is true of all sorts of holds. You know if you've got a foot on and you're 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 stood on it with one foot and you're totally still and your heels dropping all the time as it's raising its angle at a certain point you'll slip and. Uh, if you if if you then tilt that five degrees more or so, now if you run into that, mm. that foot will work for a while and then will fail. Got it. 
And if you've got two or three of those, but your run into it produces um, enough arc, like a wall of death, then you'll get extra grip. Sometimes if you've got the opposite of wall of death, you can end up toe hooking, but toe hooking produces rotation. So you're sort of like storing up problems for the future because when you when you're twisting round you can't see your feet so you're also spilling off the wall but if you get it right it's possible you get something else coming up that will sort that out mm. and also you can whirl your arms in the opposite direction so although your lower body that's doing the gripping up it's doing one thing your upper body can do the opposite sometimes you can pre pre anti-spin so that when you hit the foothold you <laughs> it doesn't happen the spin doesn't emerge <laughs> so so the movement happens before you arrive yeah did did all this okay did all this um walking as you say climbing no hands and dicking about as you call it did all of that help i mean it must have but to what extent does that help your hard technical climbing things like the meltdown or indian face i mean does it apply or is it just its own game it, within it's hugely useful yeah okay so, so if you're if you're climbing on indian face and you've got a foothold that's a bit tetchy and you're sure that you can hang the next position if you if you come out with your body a bit and you swing in and you and you grip up that foot as you're moving you know it's not slipping mm. in fact it's, it's got more grip the worse it is in a way because the, the the lower the the worse the hold the more it grips up the the sort of more under control the grip is by you whereas if you have an edge and you stand on it you're sort of trusting the designer of the boot okay or or it even feels safer really than just edging because you're you're making the grip somebody does a good ollie that they, they, they they're controlling what goes on with that skateboard mm. in, in a way that they don't if they're doing a grind or something in the same way. That's, I mean, I don't know enough about skateboarding. I've done a few. Well, I was going to ask, were, you, you, you've you used the ollie and the skateboard analogy quite a few times in this conversation. Were you a skateboarder yeah. or, is that, or does that just seem no. like... Okay, no. I, I, I always tried to do an ollie and, and <laughs> I, I think I did one or two really shit ollies. But, um, <laughs> okay, okay. But, uh, I did a few grinds, and I also did, you know, those sort of Natus Cowpass things where he, he used to flip it up and land on the trucks. And, and uh-huh, yeah. I did all those before him, actually. Okay. Well, about the same time, but I, I, I used to do those same little nib-knob tricks anyway. They were good fun. But, um, yeah, I was, never, I was never a proper skateboarder at all. So uh, in, our, in our pre-interview, we had talked about you sharing three footwork tips. I wonder if you can share, I know you don't want to give away all your secrets and you've already shared some of them, but do you have any additional footwork tips for the, let's say the average climber who maybe just wants to get better yeah. at footwork for bouldering or for sport climbing or for trad climbing? Um, is it as simple as spending more time climbing without your hands and, and practicing some of these things or um, what footwork tips come to mind? Just work on work work on standing and stepping. So just find two footholds, one of which is slopey, one of which is edgy, just above the ground, and and uh, try and step up onto those two footholds and step up into a still position. And if you can if you can stay still in that position, you know you understand the grip. Mm. So uh, 
and there's various ways in which you can improve how you do that which uh the book will explain <laughs> <laughs> uh, let's talk about your book you then can... <laughs> yeah it's 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 weird giving stuff away but i, I think it's uh <laughs> the, ma- the main point is to is to harness the grip and understand how gravity affects you as you move okay and if you think that through then then you'll you'll improve a lot and uh yeah, that 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 happens when you're um when you find some holds which you find interesting. I think mm. if you can find there's there's certain boulders around the place that are maybe like sort of like four foot high, and if you slip off them and get it wrong, you know you really face plant. So it, it it's it's quite intimidating frictioneering. It's not it's not um it's not easy. Yeah, and it's not you know, and you basically get to practice being confident on really bold routes because it's really intimidating. Some of the things I've done simple steps on, it is simple as, as standing and stepping, but stands and steps aren't, aren't simple. They're really like, specific and really precise. Mm. So there's there's one, for example, in, in the river um, outside Sheffield in, in the, the uh, Padley Gorge, it's called. And, you know, you just step up on this foothold and you're facing a 25-foot fall into the river. <laughs> But but you you think how would it be done? You look at the angles coming off the grip. You think what? How do my feet need to go on there? You arrange your foot angle, and you think what shape does that make of me? And then you step up into that shape. You imagine where your hands need to be, and there's you know there's a, there's, a, there's a rack of things that you need to do. I'm, I'm telling you about a third of them or something like mm. that. You can get it right. You will learn a hell of a lot when you come back to using your hands. Um, you know, you, you're still gripping up your feet and then all your body links together, like I was saying, you know, with tensegrity. Your body is, is you can tell when you're relaxed as well. So when you get unrelaxed, you notice it straight away and you relax again. Mm. So so it's got a lot to do with, um, uh, you know, being present-minded in it as well. Right. But um, I, I, I was going to say something and I've, I've talked over myself. What was I going to say? Well, I'd asked you about your book, not to, not to derail your thought, but maybe it was related yeah. to that. Yeah, so I'm d- doing, a, doing a book called Footwork Handbook, which will have the simplest way of understanding how to use your your body, and it's it's designed for the newcomer, the journeyman, the outright sort of professional trying to do as hard as they can, mm. and also sort of um, you know the the explorer or experimenter as well. So depending upon which flying vehicle you use, your way of getting lift in the world and climbing, <laughs> you choose a different avatar that introduces the things that would be most useful to you at the stage you're at. Mm, okay. And so it, 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 there, were, there were nine maps of grip and gravity, and uh, by running through drills with their own yardsticks, you know you can uh, reliably progress towards... Um, getting a lot of grip out of the rock and moving in the best way. Mm. That's what it's about. And where are you at in the process of writing the book? Jesus. <laughs> so much. <laughs> so I'm so clear about it. The wording's finished. Lots of drawings are done. It's just that as I progressed, I've, you know, they're all sheets of paper, but they're all at different angles, but they all talk about the same thing. 
But now the introduction's done, the wording's the same, the glossary's finished, the bare rubric of drills, the the necessary drills are finished. Um, Yeah, I mean, I want to get out by May the 9th. Okay. So if anybody wants to try and do the same thing, they've got about two and a half months. (laughs) To beat you to it? (laughs) Yeah. I don't think anyone else, I don't think anyone is more qualified to write the footwork handbook than you, Johnny. So I don't think you have to worry about that. Um, well, that's great. May 9th. I'm, I'm so excited for the book and I will definitely keep people posted. This episode will probably come out sometime in March or early April. You and I re- are recording in early February. So um, you guys listening won't have too long to wait if it's if it's finished on schedule. Um, I want to ask a little bit just about your writing in general. So this is, I believe, your second book. Is that right? Yeah. So you wrote an auto autobiography called Full of Myself, which I think might be the best title for an autobiography ever. Maybe, maybe ever. <laughs> it's just so perfect. Um, tell me about your your writing practice. I mean, something that we talked about in our first conversation is just all the different things that you enjoy doing, you know, besides just climb. Yeah, besides climbing, you have lots of different interests, art and um, singing and, and writing, and you admire a lot of other artists and writers. What does your writing practice look like? Is that something that's an important part of of your life and expression? Do you write consistently or is it just these couple books um, that have caused you to to kind of dip into writing? I think the uh, the cutting edge of my writing happens when I wake up early in the morning. So sometimes I I sit there and I'm, and I'm writing and it's so fragile what I'm writing. And sometimes it snags things that I just wouldn't wouldn't think were possible to put into words properly. And, uh, you know, if I could just ticker tape, if it came out of my ear or something, but like, like, like a, a 70s... Uh, train uh dymo tape do you know what that how old are you steven i'm 33 i think i know what you're talking about but (laughs) our references are not quite there are they yeah yeah if if i could write like that then i'd be i'd be really happy man because and i don't really know where that sort of stuff comes from it's like uh you know i don't think consciousness is, is is necessarily just inside one's own brain Hmm. Something, something weird's going on. There's right. been too many reports of, of, of you know, consciousness being outside bodies and all sorts of stuff like that. And I've experienced too much weirdy myself in my life. Hmm. I think that there isn't a possibility that some of the ideas one gets, um, you know, come from other sources. And um, it is mysterious, isn't it? When when you uh, when you have a really clear thought, or you finally put something into words that you've never been able to capture before, or you create something, you create art or something like that. Um, sometimes when I ask a question on the show, I don't even know where it comes from. There's kind of it's kind of mysterious, isn't it? It's it's almost this sense of something just passed by, and you were able to to latch it at the perfect moment as it was passing, but it's it's really hard to know where it came from you know it, it doesn't feel sometimes like i thought of a question or came out of or the, or the question came out of me it was just i happened to snatch it as it kind of drifted by in this stream it's it's, it's mysterious yeah i just think it's unhealthy to think of it as your thought mm. so i like to think of it as that that, that splendid thought that came to me mm. that's all 
I don't really need to know more than that. But on the other hand, if if you spend time thinking about something, eventually your body will sort it out, and uh, or whatever it is, what what the grannies I call them, you know, the grannies. Back you to know, this, the, yeah. the, these three, but also there's the there's the other, there's the big granny in the sky, maybe, or or the one under the bed. I'm not sure where they are. <laughs> But anyway, you have those thoughts. You're lying in bed, and suddenly you've got this this great phrase goes into your mind. And um, some of those I get down, but some of them I I don't. But it's like um, when I'm writing about things that haven't got anything to do with climbing, I sort of feel like I'm a writer. But when I'm writing about climbing, I'm really looking forward to sort of getting beyond climbing in that way. I just mm. want to just climbing again. But this this business of coordination, I've really enjoyed trying to try trying to harness that at times because it's not a trick. It's, it's like an octopus covered in e- eel, you, you know, in oil rather. It's uh, really difficult to to master it and systematize it. Mm. Some of the things I've written, I think, you know, do a reasonable job of that. Well, it's, yeah, it is interesting because as you're saying that, I'm thinking that watching you climb and and do these no hands climbs it it seems like you strike me as one of the most intuitive climbers that i've ever seen it seems like you're really just listening to your body and in tune with your body and you're not really thinking super consciously about some of these things maybe you are but i imagine that that playfulness and intuition is probably especially hard to instruct you know in a in a book in writing it seems like you've managed to do it in an inter- interesting way with all these analogies. And so I'm really excited to read it. But I, I have to imagine that maybe the way that you learned all this stuff and practiced this stuff was a very different process than reading it in a book. You know, that I mean, there wasn't a book for this sort of stuff. I've read some interesting things that point towards it. Like I read a wonderful book about Aikido and Eugene Herigl's book Zen and the Art of Archery, Jerry introduced me to, Jerry Moffat introduced mm. me, which I really like. Okay. Uh, Krishnamurti talked about the, the the possibilities of being still. There was um, Jeet Kune Do, um, Bruce Lee's book. All of those things taught me the right kind of seriousness to bring to the subject, the, the reverence to to actually give a damn about it enough to not squeeze it into a convenient form for the sake of making it easy to sell. It's so what I've tried to do is is make different levels. I, I you know the last level is stuff that I'm not sure about, but I still shared. But in the footwork handbook, that's that that's really trying to make a a, a simple, useful thing. Mm. But footnotes, that's a series of essays which has got all sorts of weirdy in it. And that's uh I give them grades basically, different amounts of Einstein heads. So if you get <laughs> if you get if you get three um three fuzzy heads, then I mean to say Einstein, bloody you know, he he cribbed off a lot of other people, really. I'm not mega impressed with that stuff <laughs> like james clark maxwell who i like okay and tesla him and tesla i mean tesla was completely out there you know knew how to knew how to float but the whole business of floating rocks and stuff you know all these huge stones that they can't explain how they got where they were and then mm. they all fit together and earthquakes don't move them and uh, they've got lumps sticking out of them 
you know, which meant that they had to get rid of all the other rock that leaves the lump. And it's just these things are completely weird. You want to boulder a problem as hard as that. That's that's what Rabbitoo's working towards, I think. But like, uh, <laughs> you know, it's like, um, yeah, got myself a bit lost there. But anyway. <laughs> Let me ask you this. So uh, you were talking about the Footwork Handbook the other day. And of course, it's a it's exactly what the name would make you think it's a it's a handbook about footwork for climbing but you said it's also a window into being alive what did you mean by that a window into being alive you included some other things in there that sound like they're not just technical instruction but just if you're you know it's really nice when when you got into to frictioneering because when you go to a new place just like a parkour person you know but frictioneering is very slow so you've got really fast frictioneering which is parkour but you've also got sort of balanced stuff which is more like yoga so anything really fits into that i mean i'll just grab yoga and put that in frictioneering as well <laughs> but um it's like uh that's like you know slow climbing on the ground bending around being present you know frictioneering has got the same sort of thing to offer but they're based on solid structures. So, so, it's, so it's a sort of halfway house between yoga and parkour in a way, mm. but it's also really wide. So I mean, chopping an onion is a frictioneering game or <laughs> um, sliding a glass on a table, you know, and try and, try, try and shove halfpenny, you know. But my friend John Sylvester and I used to play this game where he'd split all Drew's, um, his son's cars, um, toy cars, into the table and then you'd slide them along the thing and then if, if they stayed on the end of the table you know you, you you got to keep that car and if you didn't your mate got it and bit by bit you know you get a pile of cars at the end and you get a winner well that means you have to sort of hear the right thing to do with your with the car and predict it and notice that in your mind and uh, you know that that's another game so you can sort of it's just being awake and enjoying what you do and um and noticing what you're interested in really hmm. you know your enthusiasm tells you who you are i think overall hmm. and that's another route to doing things rather than doing what is already being done by other people and, and copying that although that's also very very powerful as well hmm. but i think it should be a choice as to which you do not not just to fall into the the biggest uh, V, you know, in the in the neighbourhood because there's lots of I've been climbing a lot in gardening gloves in um in a climbing wall re recently, <laughs> so I'm gonna do a little video called I've got a tripod. Somebody's I'm gonna have a tripod soon, so I'll start making some small TikToks and little videos for Instagram. Okay. Well, I'll, I'll give little, little sort of shorter tips, you know. And wearing gardening gloves is great because you don't wear out your skin. But, you, but you're practicing like chunky monkey hanging, um, but really accurate. You've got to make momentary grip on the holes in order to like you know find the next position because they're so bad. They're two sizes. What have I got them actually? <laughs> anyway, the big gardening gloves. You can imagine they're about that much longer at the end. Yeah, like half an inch longer than your fingers, so they're just clumsy. Yeah. yeah, you have to dig them in like that and then get the hold, and then all the ripples are like underneath and you have to hang them like this. It's really funny. It's a good laugh. It makes climbing on the, on, on the wall like, you know, really, really, really enjoyable. Yeah. One thing I'll say to your friends as well um, who want to improve their footwork, get hold of um, 
get hold of some carry mat or you know some foam and most people's boots are too are just too too loose and rather than buy another pair of boots just get some carry mat and just put them in the back of your boot and you can basically make a, a you know a cumbersome pair into a sharp pair hmm okay stuff some foam into the heel of your climbing shoe to make them tighter yeah exactly okay that's a good tip and clean your shoes is a good idea as well yeah sometimes yeah definitely um let's see what else do we have here i want to touch on a couple more things before i let you go i know i've taken a lot of your time today uh this is a question from it, nick it. what's that i've enjoyed it yeah me too me too i've enjoyed it a lot um let's see will asked a question about your heroes and you did share some of your climbing heroes early on um but i guess i'll ask that one um who inspired you early on in your climbing? Do you have anyone else to add to the list that that we haven't talked about yet? And then I'll get to Nick's question. Uh, John Gill. I found his book was fantastic. Uh, Ron Fawcett inspired me until I became a bit wiser. <laughs> Johnny Woodward. Uh, Pat Littlejohn. Um, also, the the 30s climbers in the Dolomites, people like Dolfer, I just thought they were just mad. They're just going for it totally. Just soloing up those pinnacles I thought was fantastic. Mm. And, uh, you know, some, sometimes I went Dolfer style. You know, I was once in Sardinia and I went traversing across this cliff. And I literally traversed 180 foot across and there was one line through this cliff you know, and I and I solo this above the water. I, I kept thinking, oh, I'm deep water soloing, but I was about 150 foot above the bloody sea. Wow. So so I, <laughs> and I got to the top and I was sort of rocking over on this hole and I thought, and I checked it was solid and stuff, but I was rocking over and thought, you know, I'm doing this, but this is a bit barking. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, so that was Dolphin inspired. Which other climbers? I'm just trying to think because there were lots and lots of people. Pete Willens really um, inspired me. He was a, a, a late district climber. He always used to sort of talk about the, clipping the first piece at 80 foot and there'd be a, there'd be a bit of tat on it, you know, that he'd, that he'd tied off with. And and then he'd get another rock sort of 30 foot from that. And I, I just love that sort of, crazily run out kind of vibe that Pete Willits used to used to give me. Because these roots have amazing names like the edge of extinction. Mm. You know, like that. Yeah. And in, in other walks of life, I um I really like uh, in musical terms, I really like Debussy. Mm. In writing terms, I really like Marcel Proust. Artist wise, I really like Vermeer and Goya. And um there was, there's an amazing impressionist artist who's got a double-barreled name who used to paint down in St. Ives. He was an English impressionist, which, by the way, came before the French, I believe, and uh, which is not widely known. But he, he he did an amazingly beautiful picture of some fishermen um, on, a, on a sunlit beach. And I can't remember who the hell that is, that, mm. that, that artist. It's really annoying that I forget. So those are some of the artists I like. That's great. This is kind of a follow-on question to that. 
Who do you pay attention to these days in the climbing world, and who do you have the most respect for? You've already talked about Sean Rabatou a little bit, but do you follow climbing these days? And and if so, does anybody stand out to you? Um, I mean, the kind of climbing, the kind of climbing I would love to hear about is people trying big cliffs with no prior knowledge using no pegs or bolts and climbing E9 ground up. Mm. That or that should be feasible if you found the right cliff and you've got the right combination of people. So the, I can think of some English climbers that I've got great respect for. Ben Bransby, Ryan Pascal, James McAfee. Uh, there, there are lots of others. As soon as, soon as I walk away, I'll, I'll remember more. <laughs> sure, yeah. Your Pete Whitaker, amazing climber. Miles Gibson. Um, but they're kind of the generation, the last generation. The new generation, uh, Jim Pope, a good friend of mine. I've, I've actually, yeah, we, I used to meet him, used to coach him and his friends down in, in, um, in London. And okay. to see him sort of full circle has been really nice. Very, very bright lad and very good boulderer. And uh, I think he's going to try and compete this year quite seriously. So it'd be interesting to see how, how he does. But Jim, Jim's uh, somebody I, I'm, I'm impressed with. Um, and I think uh, Seb Buin I find amazing. Oh, but I'll tell you something I've, I've really got a small respect for is Charles Albert. Say the name again. Uh, Charles Albert. Oh, yeah. Charles Albert. Yeah, yeah. Climbs in in, uh, in Fontainebleau. In, in Fontainebleau, I think he's quite amazing. What he can do, barefoot Charles. I, yeah, I, I, I like the uh, the mysterious simplicity of the man. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, living in a living in a little cave in Fontainebleau. Yeah, living off walnuts or whatever he's doing. It's amazing. This is the question from Nick that I just teased earlier. Nick writes, with the advent of sport climbing, gyms, competitions, social media, etc., do you think climbing as a cultural phenomenon has grown in a positive direction? What do you think climbing will or should look like in another 20 to 30 years? Any thoughts on that? I think I think um designed climbing indoors could become something really really quite amazing but it would require a kind of language of how you tell the climber what the hold is coming up and it would be could involve i mean it'd be something like ninja warrior sort of um mixed with the parkour bouldering and i've always i was if i had a lot of money and i had the right kind of scenario i could i could build some incredibly interesting moves well they would be interesting to me you mm. know and i know why they would be interesting and i could duplicate those ideas and i think um the whole business of keeping your body healthy and um dealing with injury and how you make your body kind of lighter i don't mean in terms of weight but in terms of like uh you know cleaner and and more full of energy and um the ability to transmit what you imagine into actual movement, that's going to go a long way. Because I think 
um, the power of, of the mind is like, you know, it'll go Shaolin direction, but that will also be linked with kind of science as well. And then some of the rock that's out there that I've seen is going to require parkour levels of precision, but the holds are very small and you can't look at them when you're climbing. And this whole business of the Ollie, which I've gone on and on about in this, how you make grip by movement, that will become greater and greater. But the boots, boots are really in the dark ages. I don't really think boots have evolved since about 1990. Wow, and, um, interesting. I've got, you know, if you, if, if you climb no hands, you really notice how really quite rubbish whole, you know, boots are. They feel like galoshes. Hmm. And I could climb better just by gluing a piece of sticky rubber to my big toes, just calling it a day with that. <laughs> and uh, not many people could climb like that, but I've been doing so much no hands, my big toes really strong. But it's like, um, you know, so I think that, that will change it. And I think... Um, I mean, a, a good friend of mine is um, trains uh, Tom Stoltman, the uh, world's strongest man, and he, uh, you know, we often talk about power and how how much stronger people can get. And I know that I've been super, super strong at certain moments. And if I could, if I had access to that kind of ability, I'd be climbing so much harder. And I'm sure if that was understood you know, people's ability. I think you see some of that in modern bouldering. Sometimes they're doing something and they don't seem to weigh anything. And mm. I think gravity and sound, there's something really, really strange. Sometimes I breathe in a certain way and strange things happen. And I don't <laughs> understand it, huh. but I'm doing something like that. And that's probably the most interesting thing. But ba Bagua, I think it's called, as a martial artist, B-A-G-W-A. -A. Okay. UA B A G U A, I think. Intriguing, so intriguing. Um, <laughs> I could talk to you all day, Johnny. I I'm not going to go down some of the rabbit holes that are coming to mind because I want to respect your time and um and one. Well, I don't mind doing it another time if it's okay. You, yeah. Lovely. Okay, we can do a round two sometime. I I would love that. I want, I have one more segment kind of in mind to kind of wrap things up for this conversation. And this is a little note that I wrote down called Life Lessons with Johnny Dawes. And uh, I'm curious if you have any life lessons to pass on um, before I let you go. But the first thing, or the, the only thing that I really have on that list is the three-legged stool. Okay. Could you tell me about the three-legged stool? Well, if you've got, if you've got three indicators of something, for instance, if you know, want to know what's going wrong with the disease, you want to have the epidemiology to find out who got it when and under what circumstances. You look at the tissue to see what went wrong inside the body. And then you read the literature about what people think about it. And after you've done those three, then maybe you'd work out what's actually gone on. S say there was a pandemic or something like that. You could look into the pandemic and work out what actually went on. Something like that. Okay. Triple indication. Triple indication. If you have three indications of something. So if you, I think I'll do a, do a, do a different stool. So you've got the opportunity to use a non-controversial stool. <laughs> um, one controversial version of the stool would be 
how do you know something? It's epistemology, it's called, isn't it? How do you know something? Mm. Well, if I, if I know where an end position is, <laughs> this is just this is exactly what the book's about, though. Oh, okay. Am I stealing? I'm stealing your and a key I idea from your timely. book. I don't mind doing it in the second interview, but I don't. Okay, should we tease that? Should we just tease that for next I just, time? I, I just think that that to know something properly, you need to know three angles on it in order for it to be known, because then it stabilizes. It becomes still. Mm. Climbing, you talk about three points of contact, and that makes sense if you're only using your body to, to stay on. But if you're using your mind, you need three types of understanding to stay on properly. Mm. Okay. You, uh, it doesn't say much, does it? And, it's, no, it's very mysterious, but that's okay. We can talk more about it next time after your book comes out. But yeah, being circumspect about being circumspect about things and thinking about things from many angles um, was something that we talked about in our first conversation. And I remember you saying, "You don't have to come to conclusions about things." I, I really appreciated that perspective. That it's there's value in thinking about things, um, especially now where you know people are so polarized, and it's never been easier to fall into a camp with the way that social media algorithms point us in certain directions and things. Uh, there's a lot of value in thinking about anything from multiple angles, trying to understand different perspectives. And you don't have to come to a conclusion necessarily. I think that's something that um, I at least feel a lot of pressure to do sometimes. Like, you know, are you in this camp or that camp? And I'm like, well, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I don't know that much about or, or I, I can kind of see um, lots of different explanations or understanding, understandings of this situation or, or whatever, or imagine lots of different understandings. I'm being really vague, but I just think um, that comment that you don't have to come to conclusions, but there's value in thinking about things from many angles. I really resonated with it. I thought that was, that was interesting. I think if you, if you look at things from many angles, you can see what you're looking at. And you don't just need to, to look at it, which is the main metaphor that people have. You know, it's, it's incredible. This, I mean, talking about Debussy, he actually recorded himself playing using a machine that cut into blocks of wax that then played the piano back. So it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's not called a Megatron. It's got a weird, it's a Victorian piece of, chunky material but basically when he played it it then plays it like he played it and listening to him play Debussy you can hear what isn't in the notes and you're not going to get that if you have got an opinion about how Debussy should be played mm. Debussy would have played it differently he'd also play it differently on a different day wouldn't he mm. because I can hear that in his playing it's like an omelette you know good omelettes are to do with the pan, the eggs, the person. Um, and you, you, you know what's going to come out of your, it's going to be really enjoyable to eat. If you just see the person rushing around the kitchen and it's a dance and he can't even be bothered with the egg, the egg tells him when it's ready because it'll make that, that little bit of burnt crystalline thing and it'll, it'll go <laughs> and, and you'll hear it and it'll be right. And then the egg's ready, you know? <laughs> 
It's like, have you ever made pasta when you're in a bad mood? <laughs> Fucking inedible. It tastes evil if you're in a bad mood. Somehow the pasta knows. So, <laughs> and the pasta will tell you it, things talk. It's not all one way. That's that's basically my point. This weirdy going on all the time. Mm. <laughs> I think if I had to summarize this conversation and really take away one theme, it would just be being present and really being like really noticing things, really being present and engaged um, with what you're doing when you're doing it and listening to the the world around you, I guess, rather than um, having preconceived notions about how things should be. Does that feel right? Anything to add to I that? I think so. Yeah. Why not? It just seems like a good <laughs> basic idea. Yeah. You got some of this, you got some of this, got some of these. <laughs> Some of that motioning to his different, and then there's senses. some of the some of the whatever. The some of the whatever's bloody weird. The yeah. whatever's really damn weird, and um, we don't really know. We, we see like this little slot, don't we? And there's all the other stuff, right? Yeah, there's so much mystery I mean, it's, in it's life. Really, really strange. I mean, they start trying to grow um, a crystal of gallium arsenide in one laboratory. And it grows in the other laboratory, the other side of the world. Mm. It's like gallium arsenide wakes up and says, yeah, let's make a crystal. Something else <laughs> is going on, isn't it? <laughs> right. Right. Fascinating. And it's two, it's two with um, the water rat mazes. You know, I'm a, I'm a Rupert Sheldrake fan. Okay. He, he thinks of uh, formative causation. You know about this? No. So formative causation is the idea that, that, that if, if, you, if you do something, then it's easier for somebody else to do. Like boulder problems are not just easier to do because you watch your mate do and then you're angry, so you do it as well or whatever. <laughs> or you're so pleased with him that you, you sort of get relaxed and then you do it or whatever. The, 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 like, the explanation is what one decides to pull out of the bag. But the, it is actually easier to do because that thought form is, is then there in the ether. Oh, wow. A lot, a lot of societies have believed in... in um, you know, consciousness being outside the body, and water rats go through mazes. They they have a thing with the the same configuration of water rat maze in two places, same species, and they time how much it, how long it takes to go through, and it's X. The next one goes through, and it's less than X, and eventually it goes straight through. Now, wow, that's that that, that sort of might be interesting. I think is is interesting. Like what's going on there? That are they talking to each other or whatever? but it's easy for them to go through. What is even more mind-blowing is if you made the same configuration of water rat maze and then you put a water rat through it in a different place of the same species, it goes straight through. Mm. That's, not, that, that's, that's not possible, but that's what happens. Mm. So that goes against everything that we think, doesn't it? Yeah. And so, you know, if you... If 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 you if you talk to rock or or you listen to rock, it might have something to say. You might be surprised. Mm. <laughs> just imagining thousands of listeners leaving this conversation and just going out to the boulders and talking to the rock. I hope that happens. Hello, rock. <laughs> Johnny, do you have any other life lessons for us? Anything that you wish people knew or spent more time thinking about? Oh, go, go, go to bed when you feel tired. <laughs> okay. 
That's a good one. Uh, Netflix has made that harder than ever. Yeah. Life life lessons. Um <laughs> I, I, I just imagine the other person's um, is is a sort of as big a creature as you are. You know, you only they're like they're like um, icebergs, aren't they? People, mm. and, I, and I think even absolute numpties, you know, they can flip up, and the be underneath is, is is not is not the same. Mm. On the other hand, that iceberg can be really bloody dangerous and really contrary and really irritating. But yeah, the, the, there's more to people than meets the eye, I suppose. Oh, that's a good one. Yeah, it's good. What about you, Steve? What's what's your life lesson for me? Oof. Um, you know, the first thing that comes to mind, I'm, I'm actually stealing this. Uh, I just heard this quote yesterday and I really liked it and I wrote it down. Uh, and the quote is, I don't even know who said it, but uh, but I it's funny. It, I, I heard it from uh, a, an Emil Abrahamson video where he was just kind of being funny and sharing a bunch of inspirational quotes. But I was like, that's actually a really good one. And it says, it is never too late to be who you might have been. Mm. I really like that. We kind of get, you know, to some extent, I think to a great extent, we get to wake up and choose who we are every day. And it's never too late to rewrite some of the scripts that are really ingrained that we say to ourselves about who we are. We can change those. Kind of lights a fire under your ass, you know? It's like, it's so easy to just become entrenched in an identity that you have, whether or not it's helpful. And I think sometimes it's hard to even have the awareness that that's what we're doing, that we're telling ourselves a story about who we are. And it's never too late to change that story. Yeah, because you, you're, you're the interview guy now. Yeah, right. Right, I'm the pod I'm I the nugget podcast guy. That. Yeah. I think the one that I think the you know when when I um when I read that quote there's a couple levels that I was thinking about it on. I mean the first one is just, you know, how I want to exist as a person. I'm obviously like on a very deep level. It's interesting to think about who I might be and what stories I tell myself and, and, you know, whether or not there's some that I could change in a more positive direction. But then it really stood out to me as a climber as well. I think this is a really common thing where you start to identify as uh, a climber of a certain grade or a certain style. And you think that I climb V10 and I climb well in this style or that style. And, you know, it's other people it's kind of like what you shared about Jerry Moffat. It's other people who are very different from me that do these sorts of things that climb V13, V14 or whatever it is. It's it's easy to tell yourself that you're different in some way or, or that you are fixed in some way. And um, we see people change all the time and, and uh, we see people show us that things are possible all the time. And I think that's something I've been thinking about lately is, okay, what story do I tell myself about the climber that I am and in what ways does that hold me back I think that's a really common thing you know we, we all kind of connect to the the state of climbing when we started I think and for me I started climbing at 18 years old this was 2007 I think yeah 2007 or 2008 and um, 
I didn't have examples of people that climbed well, really, around me. You know, I thought that V8 and 5.11 were a big deal because I just didn't have examples of people climbing V12 and climbing 5.14 or whatever it is. And uh, it's taken me a long time to break down some of the aura that I attributed to hard climbs, you know? They seem intimidating. They, they seem other. They seem like, oh, it's only these these aliens, these unrelatable humans that are special that do these sorts of things. And I mean, nowadays, like 10-year-old kids climb 514 all the time. So what's the big deal, you know? But it's hard to really internalize that and and break down, I guess, those those narratives, those stories, those identities about the type of climber you are and, and the the things that we define as hard or impressive or you know, um, worthy of being a big goal or inspirational or whatever it is. So I feel like I'm kind of rambling now, but. No, I think working, working out will actually mean something to, to oneself is, is what I take from that. You know, I was, I was just up at this thing called the knuckle, which I dug out of the, the quarry and it's just basically a woody. And I sit down in there and there's, there's a set of really horrendous crimps that are really like just dying to snap your tendons. <laughs> and then there's really bad pinches, which are dying to snap a different part of your tendon. And I just hang in there and I'm, I'm a bit overweight at the moment. I'm desperately trying to lose weight. I fast and then I end up fucking, my dad will ask me, fancy a scotch, John, in a minute and I'll have a scotch. <laughs> <laughs> have we got any wine? Like some before I know it, I'll have a glass of wine and then I'll be munching through some cashews. And that, that's better than crisps. You know, I'll, I'll buy myself off with that. Before I know it, you know, I won't have lost the weight that I needed to do because I should be at Klemnos just like climbing. But I can't do that. So I've got to somehow be a different version of myself you know, so I, I was roof man the other day, you know, and I was just going across the roof doing V4s and, well, I'd like to say V5s, but they weren't. They were V4, you know, <laughs> but, I, but I'm a bit overweight and bloody hard. I think I did quite a good job of one of them, but basically, you know, I'm not roof man. But if I slowly sort of work on being roof man, I can quite enjoy it. I'm, I'm doing gardener's world, you know, that, that I enjoy it. But as playing at home, I'm just being, you know, being Johnny Dawes there, but if I'm, you know, if I'm being roof man, I'm I'm just fucking useless. So <laughs> it's, it's it's quite all right to be useless, really. It's all right. <laughs> Is that the takeaway? I love that. Because <laughs> yeah. it's, it's 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 a challenge being useless, isn't it? And enjoying it. Yeah, yeah. The other Starting hand, over, being a beginner yeah. again. I'd, I'd, prefer, I'd prefer not to have achy bones. and I, I don't feel very physically well at the moment. And I've, you know, I'm like trying to, trying to sprout seeds and, um, you know, and sleep better and drink more water. And, but I think for a while, your, your, body, your body dumps loads of crap in your system. You actually feel worse. I'm hoping that's what's going on. Actually, oh, when you, when you try to get healthier, is that what you mean? Yeah. Yeah, like there's like a detoxification or something that happens. Yeah. I think there's truth to that, yeah. So do you live as a bachelor in that van? Yeah, I do. At the moment, I do. Yeah, it's just... Uh, what are you reading at the moment? You know, that is an excellent question. Kind of puts me on the spot. I have an entire box of books sitting in the driver's seat of my van right now um, that I just move from the bed 
when I'm going about my day to the driver's seat of the van when I go to sleep at night. And I haven't read any of these books in quite a while. So I actually have a big list of books, um, which is keeping me from reading any of them just because of the sense of overwhelm, you know, like, oh, I have so many books to read. And then I just don't sit down and read any of them. Uh, The one that's at the top of my list that I need to read or want to read both, um, need and want to read next, is Jeff Smoot's book. He wrote a book about free soloing, and I'd like to have him on the podcast. He and I have already done a pre-interview. Um, but I actually need to sit down and read his book before we we chat, or at least some chapters from it. And I, I think it's really interesting just why why do people free solo? Why do people do things like Indian Face when they could, you know, go do something safe or climb it on top rope? What's the difference? Why do we do it? Why why is there such reward in putting yourself in danger? It's such a common human thing. You know, like this is it's really interesting to me because my parents ask me a lot, like if they see me do a highball or something, a highball boulder problem, they're like, why? You know, why do that instead of just climb it on a rope? Or why why do that instead of, um, yeah, yeah, like you could, you could head point it, you could top rope it and then call it good, but why did you go back and do it ropeless? And, uh, and I always find it really hard to put that into words, but, you know, they don't live a completely risk-free life. They downhill snow ski and they mountain bike and, you know, sometimes they do things that are more thrilling and a little bit more risky. I oh, think that's, that's just what, yeah, that's just what humans do. Like we're drawn to, to this, you know, this, these things that just make us feel more alive or that force us to be completely present in a way that it's really difficult to be if you don't have to focus, if there isn't that risk yeah. present. Yeah, it, it lights a it lights a fire under your ass doing something dangerous. Right, and, and when you do that, lots of parts of yourself turn up that otherwise were too bored to show up. Mm. And and then you get to stay with those things um, after that, and you notice things more. That's what I would say. Mm. It's a bit like you know, if you really decide you're going to draw, draw a really good picture of somebody, the portrait will be better because you allowed yourself to be more than you thought you were. Mm. And danger gives you the chance to. It's like a heat. It it tempers it tempers the sword. I would say. Oh, you, you can't really do that just with wanting to achieve well. I don't think. Or different sort. It's a different sort of thing. You know, but I, I can't really get that sight on. On. Well, I need to get sight on on get psyched somehow about something bloody in my climbing because <laughs> I want to go La Pedrita and free the bolt routes there and do the hardest like friction routes because I managed to do an AB plus there okay. last like, three years ago. And, uh, <laughs> That's awesome. You know, and, wow. I, and I walked 8A there as well. So Climb 13B without using your hands. That's amazing. Yeah, so you know, I, I know I know I can do something harder and I'm still overweight and I wasn't there in the right condition. I didn't have the right boots and I hadn't spent ages trying the route. And you know, I want to do something that nobody can really believe, you know. That, that's what's 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 interesting to do for me. Mm. I don't I don't want to do something hard. I've done hard things before, you know. Hard is hard is the word I don't even like the word hard. Hard. <laughs> I, I like the word, you know, impossible. That's interesting. Mm. <laughs> yeah. So, so I want to do some, you know, I want to discover, go and try them, get involved with climbing 
the things that are left in La Padrisa and like hang out with Tallow, my, my mate, we can have a real giggle, <laughs> you know, meet, meet some animals, jump across the stream and nearly fall in you know, go and see an old man that lives in a hut. I want to do all that shit again. I, I'm fed up. Modern life can go fuck itself. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it can. Can I go? What's that? Can I go? Like get off the call right now? Yeah, yeah just, just, just like <laughs> your drink. That's the best ending to a podcast I've ever had. Can I go? Yes, of course you may go. Johnny, it has been a pleasure to talk with you. Thank you so much for giving me two and a half hours of your time. I've really enjoyed it. And for people listening, you can go read Johnny's autobiography, Full of Myself. I should say that's uh, that's a book that I plan to pick up and I do really look forward to reading it. And then the Footwork Handbook is in the works. Stay tuned. It may be out as early as early May, but we'll keep you posted. And in the meantime, thanks so much for listening. Yeah, um, my, my website is, is frictioneering.co.uk. Okay, and, I'll, I'll uh, link to it. I will be doing kind of remote teaching there. And uh, I'm just trying to work out how to do that well, but it could potentially be, be very effective. So I teach the like cruise in different places and come back to them over a period of time and see how they're getting on. Mm. But I've got a method of, um, of pointing out what they're doing wrong, but also giving them uh, methods by which they can take away themselves and improve by their own yardsticks, basically. Okay. It'd be, it, should, it should be a really good laugh and should generate lots of, uh, lots of good Instagram spray as well. <laughs> Perfect. Perfect. Hey, take take care, Steve. That was good fun. All right. You too. Enjoy your drink and uh, let's do it again. Thanks a lot. Yeah. Get in, get in touch when um, when you seem seems like a good idea. All right. Take care. We'll do. Have a good night. Bye bye. Bye. Hey, friends, before you go, quick shout out to all of our sponsors for this episode. As always, you can find links to all of the sponsors and you can see the coupon codes for their products in the show notes at thenuggetclimbing.com or by simply scrolling down right there in your podcast app. I make it really easy for you guys to have great deals on some of my favorite products. So check them out. Scroll down right there in your podcast app or check out the show notes at thenuggetclimbing.com. And as always, I put tons of goodies in the show notes. So for this episode, you can find links to all things Johnny Dawes. You can find some of my favorite videos with him, the books that we talked about, etc. You can find all that stuff conveniently linked for you at thenuggetclimbing.com. Just find this episode and all of the show notes will be there, including timestamps. So you can scroll around and find the best parts of this interview if you want to listen to some of those parts again. And as always, thank you guys so much for listening. If you want even more great content, if you've been loving the show, I do have a Patreon. I have tons of bonus episodes over there, almost 50 bonus episodes that I've published so far with past guests from the show. Those bonus episodes are some of my favorite interviews that I've done on the podcast. You can get access to all of those and ad-free episodes and more for $5 per month. Go to patreon.com slash thenuggetclimbing to learn more. There's a link for Patreon right there in your podcast app as well. Thank you guys again for listening. I appreciate all of the support. I hope you have an amazing week and we will see you next time. Oh,
like we do it. Cause no one 